Welcome back to the quickest podcast ever, brought to you by Kohl's. Today's topic, fall style. Wait, wasn't it just June? Right? So I went to Kohl's. Of course you did. I got a cute Kara Santana for Nine West sweater for 25% off and a great pair of Vans. Love Vans. And save 25% on a champion hoodie for my husband. Ooh, sounds cozy. You should go. You'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. All right, folks, another edition of Mullins Music and Memories. And, of course, folks are glad that they finally got some of their stimulus check. At least some folks have received it. Other folks are still waiting to see when theirs will be coming in the mail. And, of course, folks are paying attention to a number of things that are happening here in the uh, country as far as the vaccine, as far as folks going back to school. Because I understand that some folks are going back to school or at least went back to school earlier today here in Durham and all of that. And, of course, folks are definitely definitely paying attention to a number of other things that are going on, including efforts to help the infrastructure and a number of other things that are going on in our community. So that being said, the folks are here with Mullins and Music and Memories, you know, our Monday afternoon show where we have uh, tremendous conversations around a number of issues. And we definitely like to learn a lot of different things that are going on in the world and get people's thoughts about what they are learning and what's happening with them. So definitely uh, glad that a lot of folks have definitely been paying attention to the NCAA. The uh, tournament brackets are out. I understand that uh, everybody will be heading to Indiana. They picked the teams, including the four alternates, in case there are any incidents of COVID and all of that. And then, of course, people are also paying attention to the NIT, which gave us their 16 teams. Unfortunately, my alma mater, Marquette, was not in any of those lists, so they will probably not be doing any postseason. As a matter of fact, no, probably, unless they get invited to like some of those very lesser, lesser tournaments, they will be just trying to prepare for next year's season, and hopefully they will do better. And I just learned recently that some of their players that are seniors could possibly be coming back, but most folks do not expect that they will. Because of the COVID, there is the possibility that some seniors can come back for what amounts to an extra year. But so, so far, a lot of the teams are not having their players come back, and I imagine the same thing will happen with the team here as well. And by the way, speaking of history and negative history, this is the first time since 1995. That's right. I said 1995. The uh, Blue Devils are not in the tournament at all. So they did not have the greatest year also. And this is the first time in many years that they have not been involved in the tournament whatsoever. So it's definitely interesting to see that they are not there and to see what's got going on with their life and things of that nature. I had the pleasure not that long ago of doing an interview with a gentleman that is making a lot of noise in the music industry. And I'm here to bring up the interview that I did with him as part of this particular show, Mullins and Music and the Memory. So we're going to bring up the interview that was done with Andrew Lozana. And he's definitely got some great thoughts and some very amazing things that he was part of. And I'm definitely glad to have the opportunity to talk to him. And that's what we're going to be bringing up as part of Mullins Music and the Memories on this particular evening and all of that. So definitely about to pull that up, let y'all check out what he had to say and what he was all about. But I thought it was a very powerful conversation that he had. And then who knows, we might come back in the last hour with some additional guests as well, but I have to see whether they are available and whether they are able to show up or not. But right now we're gonna bring up the interview with Andrew Lozana and let y'all check out what he's all about 
and what he had going on in his world. Because, you know, a lot of times folks are very much interested in learning the various things that are going on in the world and what people are doing. So right now, let's bring up the interview with Andrew Lozana and see what he's got going on in his world. I think that y'all will find this to be quite an interesting interview, and I'm looking forward to hearing y'all's thoughts on the interview. Well, it's our pleasure to have on this evening Andrew Lozano. He's going to be joining us. He's a musician out of California. It's definitely my pleasure to have Eris out of um, Hawaii, who's with Ubo Magazine, who definitely referred me to a lot of great uh, entertainers, musicians, and other folks. So always glad to have folks that are connecting me to great interview subjects. And definitely Eris is one of those. I've also got Ellis that has sent me some folks from Boston. And of course, I've recently discovered Pilot, which has definitely got all kinds of folks available for internet interviews and things of that nature. But y'all know I'm a big fan of the music, having grown up at a radio station in uh, North Carolina when I was the uh, young age of being a teenager. Now in my late 50s, folks decided to start a radio station because they were sitting there going like, we cannot believe that uh, we're not hearing enough good jazz and things of that nature. So they were sitting there going like, if we don't hear it, we'll go ahead and create it for ourselves. So they created that station in like around Independence Day, around the centennial back in 1976, or around that time frame and everything. And it was on for about 11 or 12 years. And I've been involved in media ever since and all of that. So enough about me. Let's go over here and meet Andrew and see what he's all about and what he's got going on in his world. Like I said, I was glad that Eris was able to introduce me to you and learn a little bit more about your music and all of that. But now our audience here on the international broadcast media can learn about you as well. I know we've got a few music shows that are here. My friend Alexandria May does one that deals with uh, singer-songwriter types, and she's actually out of South Africa. Some folks have even compared her to being like the Taylor Swift of that era, area and everything. So she's definitely been doing a number of things between South Africa and Nashville, less between the two areas now because of COVID, of course, but definitely she was doing that before the uh, pandemic hit and is definitely hoping to do it more in the near future. And then my friend Zach does a funk music show, actually does two funk music shows, one on his own network, uh, uh, Grant, Nine on the Grind is the name of that network. And then he does one here, which is funk music with Zach. So definitely has some folks in the music business. And of course, having come out of radio myself, I'd love to hear about your musical journey. Well, hey, man, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for that history lesson in the very beginning. You've been uh, in the game for a long time. That's, that's remarkable. I'm very uh, happy to be on the show. Uh, let's see. Well, um, I'm like you mentioned, I'm Andrew Lozano. Um, um, born and raised in San Jose, California. Lived there for 30 years before moving up to uh, Elk Grove, California, which is 20 minutes from Sacramento. Um, I've always been in the music scene. I know you hear that a lot. I talk about it a lot in some of my interviews. Like it could be a little cliche, but uh, I, as a kid, I grew up uh, doing music. And I'm just um, really fortunate to be able to share some of my uh, music with you guys today in my new album, my new project. 
you know, tells definitely glad to know more about that new project, conceptualize, and mm -hmm. all of that. And as I was looking at the time, I was like, one of the songs is actually quite fitting because it is almost 11.50 p.m. somewhere right uh, now in the yeah. world and everything. But yeah. definitely, I was just wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, first, I want to go further into your musical history. So you said that you started as a kid, like were you that kid that your parents were already into music when you were growing up and you started almost as like a baby or was it later on in your preteen years and your teenage years that you got more involved in the actual wanting to perform and actually wanting to create music? Uh, a little bit of everything, like you just mentioned there. Uh, growing up as a kid, uh, I was, grew up in church. Uh, you hear that a lot. Um, my parents, um, you know, they, they didn't sing in the choir. They were actually, my dad was like part of a band. And um, I grew up listening to Andre Crouch, which is a gospel soulful singer who passed away several years back. Um, and growing up, uh, I always had like the Latin percussion influences for my family. They're all Latin musicians. My grandmother was a, a Latin musician in, in Mexico. And uh, my dad has has an album here that he made when he was my age, probably younger, a lot younger than me, actually, when he was in his wow. uh, teens. And so uh, going up through the years, uh, you know, I did I, I sang in all like an all boys choir um, for the Sylvandale Select when I was in junior high. And then later on, jumped in a band called Roach in high school. I won the talent show. Uh, and then um, we were in the Mercury News. We, we did a couple of. Uh, of independent shows um, and as the one of the youngest bands to play the Sofa Festival in San Jose. Um, and then from there, actually, in my uh, later years, I was in a trio called Unique. We were an acid, uh, I wouldn't say acid, it was like more a jazz, um, acid jazz, uh, fusion, kind of like the brand new heavies. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that evolved into house music because we lost our drummer and we replaced the drummer with a with a computer. And so I did that for a number of years. I did it for, I would toured off and on for 10 years with two members of my band, which are brother and sister. And we were called unique. And I got a lot of music under that uh, unique title. And then um, just recently I got slow things down and I'm doing something called conceptualize, which is my album that just came out on January 8th. And I love the sound. It definitely has some jazzy kind of uh, tunes to it. And I, like I said, I'm a big fan of blues, but also a big fan of jazz. And I was noticing some of the jazz kind of style to it. I was just wondering, growing up, you definitely mentioned your folks being an influence. But who were some of the other influences in your own musical style? Like I said, you definitely oh, have yeah. alluded to some of them. But I was just wondering who some of the people are, whether it's in jazz or whether it's in house or a number of the other musical styles that you felt influenced you? Oh, wow, man. Um, gosh, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I was into Andre Crouch, but later on, my parents did listen to a lot of secular music. So I was um, into Hall and Oates. Uh, my first concert was Andre Crouch, but uh, the uh, next concert I went to and I that I can remember was Shaka Khan. I was in oh, the crowd man. and she threw this thing out. It came flying like, you know, and I caught it. and. Uh, I'm like, I didn't even know what this was, right? And uh, it was actually a CD. And we didn't have CDs back then. It was tape cassettes, right? My dad right. went out and bought a CD player. We popped it in, and it was Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. And I was like, this is cool. I was really into that funk. And then I got into, like, Santana. Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, let's see. Michael Jackson, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and then, um, like I mentioned in, in the other interviews, um, I, I got into the whole jazz thing because I really liked Stanley Clark. He was a... Uh, a really good musician, um, and Stanley Jordan too, who actually played tap uh, jazz on, uh, and that actually um, 
changed everything for me because I was like listening to these weird odd meter beats. And uh, of course, I liked hip hop, got into Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, uh, Slick Rick, the Far Side, and of course, Tribe Called Quest. You got to love your conscious hip hop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely got to love that conscious hip hop and all of that. One of the things I was curious about is um, a lot of times there have been some great jazz musicians. I think uh, maybe even Miles Davis was one of them. Miles definitely Davis. Thelonious Monk fed in that category as oh, well. That yeah. they didn't necessarily like to be categorized. Like I said, they didn't necessarily always want to have their music put on them and everything. So if somebody was to try to narrowly define your music, are you one of those musicians that don't like to be putting in one category because i do know there was a whole trend for a while that musicians oftentimes didn't like to be said that i'm only a r&b musician or i'm only a hip-hop musician or i'm only a jazz musician they as a matter of fact i think the famous quote and like i said i wish i could remember which one of the jazz artists said it was that i just want to play good music and all of that so i just wondered your thoughts about where you like to place yourself in the, the musical genres or do you even like to be bothered with those no it's a great question uh I like how you said, uh, you know, well, I, I like to classify myself as an electronic producer because I do everything now on a computer, but I do play instruments. I play bass. I play guitar. I do a lot of Foley recordings with my djembe tambourine, a little bit of vocals. I have some other people on my album. Um, I like to, I, so I don't, I don't consider myself uh, or put myself into one genre. I like everything. I can probably produce country music if I really put my mind to it. Cause I have had them here, country musicians here. So I do mix and mastering for folks too, as well. But I've done, I've dabbled in drum and, drum and bass. I have an EP coming out, a lot of house music. And it's gotta be kind of like the Jack and soulful deep house. I love that stuff out of Chicago and San Francisco. Um, but let, right now I'm into like lo-fi hip hop, uh, conscious hip hop, uh, that type of sound. And I always wanted to do it. And I knew I could do it, um, but I wanted to see how could I do it with with something with, with a little bit more pizzazz and more bass. I wanted it to be feel heavy and still have that pumping lo-fi feel that you hear on Chilled Cow or Chilled Cow Radio on Spotify. Yeah, definitely. And how are you doing the music now in this whole era that we're in the COVID era? Like I said, I mentioned my funk musician friend, and I know that um, he's got his musicians scattered throughout the country and everything. And one of the things that he's regretting is that he can't quite get them all together because they're in different locations. And of course, he would love to be able to perform with them and everything, but doesn't necessarily have all of that technical kind of know-how and all of that. But I was just wondering how you're even able to cope in this era and how you're able to survive in this COVID era, even with your own studio. Well, I got to say in the very beginning here, uh, Mark, it was pretty rough. Um, I, I was, uh, it was February of last year, 2020 here in Sacramento, I say Sacramento, we're in Elk Grove, but it's Sacramento County. It was hotter than hell. <laughs> it was a really, really, it was a hot summer. We had fires going on and uh, COVID. So I was pretty much trapped and confined to working in my studio here. I work for a tech company. So I work from home right over here in these computers. Um, and then I turn my chair around and I sit where I'm at here with this huge studio. Um, so working with other musicians was really rough. I had a lot of ideas. I didn't know who had COVID because it wasn't a cool thing to put on Facebook. I got the COVID, right? Otherwise yeah. you don't want to have nothing to do with them. And no one knew about this, this, this COVID uh, and what the symptoms really were. We were all kind of learning together. So when I wanted to get musicians together, we did, I did things the old fashioned way. You reach out on Facebook, you use your, uh, your platform, um, stuff like this, you get your music out, uh, start texting people. And a lot of my friends already have studios. So they were able to perform and, and, and work on their mics and then send me over the stems using Dropbox. 
Uh, so I was able to incorporate some of those tunes in here. And the ones who didn't have a studio or couldn't afford it, I paid for them to come into my studio. And of course, we were, I have a pretty nice, uh, you can't tell from the camera, but I have a, a nice size room. And so we're able to wear a mask and he's able to perform. I have my AC going on and then take breaks to air out the room. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that was a big risk. I don't recommend anybody doing that without getting a vaccine um, if you're into that. Um, right. But I was able to do it and I accomplished my goals and I have more to come. So. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot with that and everything. Now, the other thing that was going on, and I know that definitely a lot of folks were very much interested in this, and we did see some, you mentioned that you're a fan of conscious hip-hop, and we definitely saw a lot of folks using their platforms in order to make statements about um, whether it was race relations or a number of other things. So I was just wondering how important do you think it is for artists to use their platforms or their power in order to get their word out, whatever that word is, in terms of being socially conscious and all of that. It seems to me that you feel that that's very important for folks to do based on some of your conversation that we've been having now, but I just wanted to hear you articulate that. Well, um, I'm not really into politics, you know, um, but I do have a voice and um, I was talking uh, with other cats about the whole George Floyd during COVID. I mean, all this crap was going on and hatred and racism. We had a president, you know, just everything was just going on. It was heated. I wanted to get on Facebook and just yell, man, you know, it's like everybody else, but I didn't have to, everyone else did that for me. Um, so I did what came next and I just jumped on this awesome keyboard, turn up my speakers and grab my computer and started working and making music. And I wrote a couple of tracks, a track called, uh, it's getting bad out here. It's about George Floyd and, and about that, you know, the minutes he he laid there before he passed away. Um, honestly, I almost didn't put out my album. Um, my album was set to be on J- January 8th, which it did go out. Okay. Right. January 6th, we had the storming of the Capitol, right? right? It was a movement for some people, not for me. I'm not into violence or racism or anything like that or hatred for our country. Um, it was a terrible thing that we witnessed, but it had to happen. It, it was just, everything was escalated, escalated. Um, so I told the wife, I'm not going to release it. I don't think this is a good time. I was kind of gauging the internet, uh, social media to see where everybody was at. And, um, cause I didn't want to put all the attention on me. Hey, look at me. I got an album. Look at my cute picture on my album. Right. It just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Can't come the eighth. Um, my wife's like, you know what? Everything's starting to calm down. You should just go ahead and release it. Cause I was going to pull it back from distro kid all my, you know, we ended up popping a bottle of champagne. My wife is, uh, she's so cute. She actually pulled up an Instagram and did an Instagram live. And it was, it was cool. It felt like a, a little bit of a relief. And then it actually worked out. Um, people needed to be diverted into something else, you know, and my music was just soothing. It was calm. Something could open a beer, maybe smoke, a, you know what I'm saying? Just yeah. relax and chill out. Okay. And just let the temperament of the internet just die down. Um, I'm just so glad we're in a new year and we're learning a lot about COVID and music actually and about each other. So, right. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I know that I've heard definitely my punk musician friend has said. Some of either Eris's, uh other clients has mentioned as well is the unifying factor of music and how a lot of times if you go to a concert you, and you probably felt that way even when you were at the Chaka Khan concert, you don't know necessarily what the person's uh, religion is. Uh, you may know their race, but you don't really care about it. You may know their gender, but you don't really care about it. And you definitely don't know their orientation, but you're mm-hmm. there for 
one common goal, which is to hear that music that you love and all of that and how that's a unifying factor just in our lives. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about music as a unifying factor in the world, particularly when we're going through all these hard times. And I agree, y'all have gone through quite a bit there in California with the fires, with COVID and with a number of other things, even the Black Lives Matter and a number of other things. So y'all have been through quite a bit there in the West Coast, but I just wonder if you could talk about the importance of music in that, in terms of unifying not just the United States, but the world. Yeah, it's important that we, we have some sort of uh, music, I always say, is a universal language. It's something that we could all hear and listen and speak to. Um, and like for me, writing during those difficult times was a little bit of a release um, and sharing my music with the rest of the world. And, and also being a musician is all about listening to others, too. So I, I got on Spotify, I got on Apple Music, I got on my, you know, my platforms and started listening to all my favorite artists. Um, and I could hear them speaking directly to me and how I was feeling because I, we all felt the same way here and here, you know. Um, I, I definitely think that uh, this is def is going to change the way music is being made in the future. We, we are, we are musicians are are united, um, and I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of this culture in this time of day uh, to to uh, feel a certain way and be able to express that musically. Um, and I'm hoping that there's more musicians that come out too because there's a lot of hidden gems out there. Yeah, and speaking of the hidden gems, I've actually got friends that have worked for some of the major radio uh, stations, whether that's Radio One, whether that's Clear Channel, whether that's a number of the uh, other one or two that are out there and everything. And then definitely I myself, in addition to doing this streaming podcast kind of work and the audio podcast, mm -hmm. also work at a low power radio station, which is uh, in. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. In Carborough, which is just outside of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but I was just wondering if you could talk about the importance of um, internet radio, the importance of definitely uh, some of those kind of underground radio stations. Because I know for a long time, a lot of independent musicians were frustrated by the kind of major radio because they didn't necessarily get enough play unless it was one of those uh, make it or break it kind of like uh, jam sessions that they might do in the middle of some odd hour or something like that and everything. But a lot of the local people weren't getting enough play from our uh, more commercial radio stations. But it does seem that the internet and a lot of other forces have opened that up. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Well, I do know some people that do uh, radio programming. A lot of it is done already pre premeditated on a computer 
and they just press play and then they they cut to a break, whatever. So it's all programmed nowadays, right? It's not like the olden days where they put the needle on the vinyl or (laughs) yeah. And then play, you know, hi-fi. I think it's important that you do get yourself heard on college stations where they have a little bit more leeway with all the licensing and publishing that's going on. Everyone's so hypersensitive, like, Oh my God, they're playing that song. They didn't get permission to use it. And I think all of that's starting to calm down a little bit more, um, you can't blatantly go out on SoundCloud and start putting out a mix. You'll get shut down and same with Spotify. So those are not really like the best outlets. The best outlets is, uh, is getting your music done. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's not polished or mastered, I'll go out to your local radio station, uh, get someone like Aries, who's yeah. really good at public relations and getting your, in getting a story put out, uh, getting your, um, uh, electronic press kit out. I am speaking to all you brand new users out there or, or musicians who are trying to get your stuff heard. Get your stuff done. If you, even if it's five tracks, get it out there and get it out to your local radio station. College stations will definitely support the cause. Um, yeah. An interview like we're doing now, this is very important. No, no doubt about that. That's very important and everything. The other thing that I was wondering, what were your thoughts? Because there was a time frame, and I guess it's still going on, that it's forces like YouTube and Facebook were definitely shutting down folks if they were using certain kind of music and things of that nature. And I think that you may have run across that. Other folks have run across it. I was just wondering what some of your thoughts are when that does happen. Cause I know my friend actually has permission to use the music from uh, Bootsy Collins. Cause he's actually friends with Bootsy and Bootsy's wife, more Bootsy's wife than Bootsy, but definitely um, they've given him permission to use a certain song, but whenever he plays that song, it has been known to get a strike or even have that part muted and things of that nature. So I just wonder your thoughts when you see forces like YouTube or Facebook that are either muting or even sometimes taking down old channels. Well, it, um, and it's, it's funny. I was just talking to uh, one of the guys that's on my label. His name is Billy Lane. Uh, he goes by 916 Junglist. He's a, he does program, uh, program for radio stations out here in Sacramento. He actually just texts me. He says, hey, Andrew, on my Twitch channel, I'm playing my own song, which is on my music label, Freaky Music Group. Um, and it keeps getting strikes. They, they'll, they'll cut it out, you know, and he's like, what can I do about that? So I had to write my distribution company, which is Ingrooves out of San Francisco, and they are a big, bigger affiliated with another company. Um, and I'm still waiting to get permission to even play my own music. So I get strikes too. Um, and there's very few forms that will allow you to do it, like Mixcloud. I think you can get away with it. SoundCloud, uh, they're working on, you know, if you do a DJ mix, you have to put the credits in. Uh, YouTube, forget it. It's it's slim pickings with YouTube and Facebook. Same difference. Uh, I guess there's just too many. It's just, it's a whole lot. I, I really, I wish I knew how to be able to play my own music and not get strikes. You know, it's really hard, but all you can do is write your, your publishing company and see if you can get in there somehow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and everything. And I know a lot of folks are trying to do different ways of doing that and everything. Like I said, even Alexandria May, I think, has yeah. run across a couple of things when she's done her show and everything. And that's even in not just here, but in other parts yeah. of the globe. Because like I said, she's in South Africa, which has teamed up with an organization that's made up of like some lawyers and some other sorts that are helping her with some of those things. I think the group is called Fame or something along those lines and everything, but it's a South African based music group. So Mm -hmm. definitely I see where people are doing some innovative ways to try to help get that um, alleviated and definitely finding ways that folks can check out these great sounds and all of that. So I know that that's just one way that people are doing things, but 
I want to come back to a little bit of your own history with your own um, production and everything. So you said that you also haven't just been a musician, but you also have been involved in production. So when did you first catch the production bug, like being able to actually produce things and how much of this house of yours or apartment or wherever you live with the wife is actually made up of the actual studio? Because it sounds like half the house is made up of your regular day job and the rest of the house has got other things going on. So y'all are probably skipping around trying to go through them to different spaces, space to face and all of that with yeah. whatever hurts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, I got my first taste of it back when I was with my band, Unique. We were a three-piece here out of the Bay Area. And when I moved up to Sacramento, we started getting less and less gigs because of distance, right? We're 100 miles away from each other. Um, when I was uh, working with my buddy Joshua Marquez, he wrote a song called Pico de Gallo. And it was a house music flavored track. We just got back from Miami from doing a huge show for the Winter Music Conference out in 2004. Um, our own records is um, is pretty well known for an independent label out of San Francisco. And um, and I'm pointing up here because I got a record up here, a real piece right. of vinyl for all you guys who know vinyl. Uh, and that's it's called Only You and Unique is spelled U-N-E-A-Q. We actually got one of the songs licensed to an EA sports game. Um, it was Soccer FIFA 2006. And it it couldn't happen at a better time. We we were still in the middle of touring, and we needed we needed cash fast because we had to buy cables. Cables are expensive, uh, and and effects processors and more headsets and mixers. And we end up, you know, I think I think we got something like five grand. You had to split half with the labels. You got they got ten, but we got or it was ten, and we got five out of it. Um, and that was the first time we ever got anything kind of published. Then I started working on scoring for small films. Uh, worked with a guy named Mike Hatton, who's out of LA. He was on a he was on a called the Green Book, I think. It was a right. actually a pretty big hit. He was the bass player in the movie. Um, so I did one of his films, and then um, working on some new Netflix films right now. I can't really talk about it. I'm trying to get some stuff licensed. Um, and uh, then I got into mix and mastering. Um, I started using my techniques I use in house music, um, started getting these kids off the street and coming into my studio uh, pre-COVID and recording these bands. And I did a lot of bands, uh, recorded, mixed and mastered, and I do my own production. And that's really where it kind of all got started. Now, everything you're seeing here in the studio, let me just give you an example. You can see here I am right here. Um, Can you see the cameras pretty well? I don't know if it's coming through, but uh, let me get back. Yeah, there. it is. Yeah, that's okay. great. Uh, definitely, I see it. Yep, yeah. Yeah. So here's a. So I got some DJ equipment. All of this stuff was uh, some of my touring money, and this is uh, actually a build in my music studio in my garage. So I don't have a garage right now. This is a very small home. It's a three bedroom home, um, and we're in the process of purchasing a new home, which I'll have another studio like this with a mother in law's quarters with my own kitchen, bathroom, so uh, my clients can come over and feel a little bit more comfortable. So um, everything. You see here is probably purchased with uh, my touring money and just collecting a bunch of gear and, you know, um, it's still a work in progress. You, you know, um, instead of buying old school gear, I'm finding out you can just use plugins. They're just as good nowadays right. with a little bit of air and compressor, you know. Wow. 
Uh, so what would be the number one thing that you would think somebody would need to have if they were wanting to get into the kind of production work that you're doing, if they wanted to just start off? Like, what's the first thing that they should get if they wanted to get their own studio, say, in South Carolina? I mean, North Carolina, but we'll just use South Carolina as an example. Yeah. But what would be the number one thing that you think that somebody who wanted to get a production studio should get if they wanted to start one in their house or their apartment or whatever they're living in quarters are? Okay, so if you were in a small confined apartment or someplace small, you don't need a lavish studio like this one, something big. You can actually record in a uh, closet space if you wanted to. You need a desk. You also need a reliable computer. And I'm just going to say an Apple computer because the viruses and stuff, they're very reliable. Uh, maybe a 21-inch iMac or a 27-inch iMac. You also need a, a good pair of headphones, okay? These are made by Slate Digital. I don't recommend getting these off the hand because they're 500 bucks, but you can get 175 bucks, get some Audio-Technica headphones. You need to have quality headphones, not Bose headphones or stuff that's going to uh, make the sound bigger than it really is. You need them flat response. You also need a, a, um, an outboard interface, uh, just something that connects to your computer, USB, so you can plug a microphone in, you can plug your headphones in, and you can monitor quietly. And uh, maybe a decent microphone. Um, as you notice in my studio, I have some padding in the background. That mm -hmm. really helps out with reflection. Um, you don't want, if you clap your hands, you, you, you don't want an echoey room. You just want something that's going to be, that's why I say a closet is a perfect spot because you got clothing and stuff that will help damper, damper the sound. Um, and then you need to use software. With Apple, you come, you get free GarageBand if you wanted to work with GarageBand, and then Excel into Logic Pro, or you can get into Pro Tools or Ableton Live. So you need a, a software, a computer, an interface, and a pair of headphones, and you got yourself a little portable studio, home studio, and you're ready to roll. Yeah. Let's make some you're music. Ready to roll then. Yeah. And what are some of the other? Uh, you mentioned a couple of them. What are some of the other programs that you think are the better ones out there that folks oh. might want to try to invest in if they're interested in like I said, starting their own production company or their own sound company or whatever. What are some of the ones other than Logic Pro and some of the other ones that you feel are just as effective or are also good? You think you mentioned Bandcamp or GarageBand, but definitely what are some of the other ones? Well, uh, so you get a lot of the, lot of, everyone wants to be a DJ these days, right? right. Um, I feel like for DJs, the best software to use would be Ableton Live because you can take what you're doing and manipulate it live. Um, you can use really fancy keyboards and stuff with drum pads and trigger stuff on the fly, um, have certain rows play at the same time and DJ at the same time. It's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty effective. Um, and I use Ableton live as well. Um, but mainly for live use, um, logic pro for me is my pick of choice. I, you know, I've always used it since I was a kid on a PC, but, uh, I would say Ableton Live is great. Um, there, uh, Pro Tools, of course, is always like the studio standard. Little, mm -hmm. little backwards for me is a little complicated, um, just because the way it does its uh, pairing of, of tracks. Um, and then you have, uh, I, gosh, it just goes down the row, I guess. From there, you know, you got Cubase right. and all these other ones. But definitely Ableton for your new beginners. If you're into DJing, that's probably the easiest. It's all shapes. Yeah, definitely. And are you finding that there's enough, um, and this is just a thought in terms of you were learning this when you were a kid, and definitely you mentioned that, having your parents being in the church and definitely you always just having this interest. But a lot of times I feel that we don't get enough support from our school system for folks that might want to learn about music and things of that nature. It sounds like you actually reached out into your 
neighborhood and things of that nature. So I was just wondering yeah. how important do you think it is for us to engage our kids that might have interest in music? And do you think that we're doing enough of that in our school system? Uh, well, okay. Uh, that, that's awesome. You mentioned that because um, my, my, um, my littlest one, who's five years old, I got three girls, one in high school, one in middle school and one in uh, um, elementary school and the elementary school teacher who's um, she's a kindergarten teacher. She sings to the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my little one actually grew up with that too. And she wants to be a singer. I don't see too much of that going into schools these days. Um, I just think it takes the parents to be involved um, ask the school, like vote on a, on a system for, for musical education. And, and, and we got to make sure that it's not distracting from the kids education. Cause a lot of these kids, they grow up, um, in some, um, tough neighborhoods, they see music as an outlet and they let that take ownership of their education. You have to be a smart musician. You have to learn how to read. Okay. I tell my daughter, you got to learn how to read and then you can come in daddy's studio and work. Okay. Cause you got to be able to read the lyrics, you know, read so it goes hand in hand. It's a balance, but I would love to see more parents be involved who are musically inclined or maybe not. Just if you feel like your daughter can play flute, get her the flute. You never know. She could be another Billie Eilish, you know, like, you know, a, a really cool singer. And if you saw that documentary, I was impressed with her talent. No, she's definitely an amazing talent. There have been some other young talents. I'm even thinking about how much uh, Miley Cyrus was involved in music with Billy Ray Cyrus when she was a young kid. And, of course, she's now um, this icon and everything in the music business. But she started off when she was very young as well because her dad was a well-known country singer and then <laughs> guided her into the career and all of that. But I do sometimes think that too often too many people in – particularly poorer communities do see music, do see sports as kind of their way out. And we do know that it's a tough business, so it can be a way out, but it also, the odds are not exactly in most people's favor. I mean, everybody has got their mixtape and everybody has got their uh, sources of things that they would like to get out there, but the chances of actually making it to that high level where you're not able to, where you're able to depend on that for your livelihood, it's a rough business. So I was just wondering, what are some of the things that you tell your folks that come into your house about the music business, as well as your, uh, I think you said it was three girls, as well as your three girls and everything. Well, glad you brought the differences between sports and music with sports. Even with you get into sports and you go out to go to college to play ball, they won't let you in the NFL or they won't let you play in the NBA uh, unless you actually go through the ropes like everyone else. I mean, there, there is some circumstances I've heard of, but um, what I tell my girls again is that education is very important. You have to have something to fall back on. Look at all the DJs that are amazing. Nothing against DJs. I DJ too. But the ones who just use that to finance their home and and, and their livelihood, they don't have a job right now. So they're struggling. Uh, And they had no degree or anything to fall back on. Some of them are into uh, a graphic design and they were able to use that, you know, because they were doing that on the side, you know. So you got to have some sort of side hustle, but you need to get your education. I went to uh, University of Phoenix. It didn't graduate, but it learned. I learned a lot about being responsible and following through uh, when I had to do my papers and how to speak to people and, and educate yourself um, and I, I honestly feel like I just need to go back and get my degree. I was doing, uh, I was getting a BS in, um, uh, what was it, in advertisement and um, information systems. Um, and that um, 
actually helped me get into the tech company. I work for Apple full time. Mm -hmm. I've been there 14 years. Uh, so that actually helped me and my skills. So you got to have something to fall back on. Always have that dream of music right here. You never know. It could make you that money, you know, right. but right now, look what's going on. No gigs. It's really no. tough. And that's one of the things I was curious about as one is doing, doing things both on the production side and also being a performer yourself. What is your uh, feeling about the future of music? Because I do know a lot of people are wondering, one, when they'll be able to go back and do live performances. I'm hearing a lot of people speculating that it may never be the same or it won't be the same for a while that we'll be going into this hybrid mix. And I actually work at a theater in um, the Carolina Theater here in Durham, and they're talking about like, you know, limited audiences and then maybe the rest of the people that are watching doing it on the computer or watching it in a virtual kind of space. So they're kind of like thinking that entertainment could almost go the way that education has gone, uh, kind of this hybrid model where part of the people are there in the audience, but because of COVID, it's a limited audience. And then the rest of the folks are watching it from their homes, or maybe they're even watching it like the drive-through movies where they're watching it from their cars, but are near the venue and things of that nature. But I'm just wondering what some of your thoughts are as to the, of music and particularly the future of uh, entertainment, the larger entertainment in the uh, next, uh, say, three to five years. Yeah, hybrid is correct. Um, uh, I was kind of gauging it off of uh, Live Nation. If you look at their roster, they kept canceling dates. They had Justin Bieber. They canceled that. They had this person. They canceled it. Um, I think a, a lot of musicians are starting are starting to get smart. They are using the platform of internet uh, to do. I was just watching a band out of Sacramento named Tycho, um, a kind of surf. Uh, I'm sorry, it's synthwave, and he's genius. He decided to do a live concert uh, in near Napa in a, in a, at six o'clock in the morning. Right. Because uh, it was amazing. And he had all the, the the camera set up with the lights in the grass and the sun was coming up um, and you had to pay to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, I was up at six o'clock in the morning with my coffee and my wife and we were just dancing in the living room on our, our 70 inch TV. And um, I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, uh, if I wanted to grab some wine, it's right there. You know what I mean? I'm in the comfort of my home. And I actually. like doing that with movies you can buy movies now 1999 you have it comes to your home now uh using apple tv i think we are learning a lot as a society when it comes to entertainment i'm hoping that we adopt this going forward um for um you know and it's okay to have a couple of friends to watch the show with you right. but i i personally want to do a concert from my living room and i will do something coming down the line possibly in late june where i i bring in a couple of friends and we're going to actually mix it and do it live with several cameras it's just it's you know i get to perform 
Um, it's not the same as being live. I get you. I loved smelling the smell of cigarettes, smell of pot and, the, and drinking and the, just the whole live atmosphere of the, just the energy you get from the crowd. The cheering yeah. is something I really and the people's face and their excitement and the sweat that drips off your brow. Um, and when you mess up, you're just like, we keep going. You know, I remember looking at my guitar player and he broke a string. We're just like, just. Just keep going, man. We'll grab another guitar in a minute. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I know. miss all that. I'm a true. No, I definitely love that. I've emceed a number of festivals here in yeah. Durham, whether it's our street festival, center fest, or whether it was Eno, which is kind of a uh, nature-oriented festival since it's yeah. on the uh, river or one of our local rivers and everything. So definitely done that and done our blues festival and a couple of other things. And I agree with you. Even if you're doing the MC work, I might slip up on a. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Own the road with T-Mobile, the leader in 5G. Whether you're cruising through Nashville on I-40, heading down I-90 to Boston, or touring Santa Cruz on the 5, you'll be covered by the largest 5G network. T-Mobile covers the most interstate highway miles in America with 5G. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Most reliable according to independent third-party Umlaut from crowdsourced user experience data from January to July 2021. Fastest according to Open Signal Awards based on average speeds in USA 5G user experience report July 2021. Uh, name or mess up in an introduction or do something of that nature or even some of the things that you uh, see if you're part of the organizational team yeah. that are you don't necessarily get to enjoy as much because you're part of the organizational team and yeah. all of that because I remember a couple of the blues festivals folks would tell me did you see this performer do that or that performer do yeah. this and I'm like no I've been too busy running between point A and point B and point C so y'all have to be my ears to tell me what I miss because right now I'm in uh, production mode so I'm not necessarily seeing everything that is going on on the actual show because we're in production mode and things of mm -hmm. that nature. I'm sure you've seen that as well, yeah. where there might've been things that you missed on the show because you were too busy being engaged in the show. Right. It happens more than I'd like to uh, remember. Uh, uh, but of course, somebody's always with their camera, video recording it on their old school eight, eight, uh, you know, those, the high eight tapes. Remember that I still right. got some of those tapes, but now we have iPhones. So whatever you miss, I'm pretty sure you go on YouTube and there it is right there. Just Google search it, you know, and you're like, oh, I didn't miss a thing. You know, right. I saw that guy fall off the stage drunk. That was great. Right. Uh, you, you find out about it afterwards. And like you said, there's a videotape version of it. I know one of the times I think that uh, there was a whole communication going around because um, it was the Blues Festival. And I think it was uh, Dan Aykroyd that was in the audience. But it was definitely one of the Blues Brothers and he was in the audience and somebody had spotted him. So you could hear like the old fashioned walkie talkie saying, did you see so-and-so that's here in the audience and everything? Cause he was actually in the literal audience. So like I said, oh it just became God. a buzz that he was there in the house. I think he was there because he was, um, and it might it was either Dan or Jim Belushi, but they were also there because Durham is famous for the rice diet, which is like one of these famous weight loss diets. So he was actually here for that weight loss program, but he knew that it was going on at the same time. So he managed yeah. to get a, 
a pass to come to oh, that. that and there was like this whole buzz going around and stuff. Did you hear that he's there and everything? So I never saw him. I did see um, Danny Glover, who apparently was a big fan of Bobby Blue Bland. So Danny Glover, I did have the pleasure of when he came into town because wow. he realized that Bobby Blue Bland was going to be performing. So they actually, I think, went and got him. And so he could be there to conversate and talk to his longtime friend, um, Danny Glover and Bobby Blue Bland were both friends of each other's. And I think Bobby may have even performed at Danny's uh, Blues Club because Danny's got, a, if I remember correctly, a blues club, or at least he's got interest in a blues club, I want to say, in Mississippi, if I'm remembering correctly. But it was just great having those kind of conversations and those kind of um, experiences. And I'm sure that there's kind of those things that you've had as well. So I was wondering if you could share with our audience some of the experiences that you've had, even as a performer, that you might want to share with our audience, just some kind of like reflective shows that you remember that you were part of. Oh, man, it's been quite a few. And I got to say that uh, some of my best shows weren't the biggest shows. They were more intimate. Right. Uh, and uh, who would have thought that one of my favorite shows with that was at the star line. And this is in Fresno, California. And I remember that day because I'm like, you know, I've, I've passed through Fresno. I had family who used to live there. And now I'm performing at this little small town with uh, and, and it. You know, it's not an upscale town. Right. Okay. And nothing against Fresno. I love Fresno. I'm going to tell you why. We, we decided we we're going to go get our alcohol ahead of time because by the time we get out, it'll be past two o'clock. So we went to the local liquor store and um, I so this, the guy there was helping me uh, behind the counter. I'm like, is that a shotgun? Guy had a shotgun behind his counter. And um, he's like, yeah. And he grabs his clock. Like, you want to find out what's in it? I'm like, no, I just uh, I'll take this bottle over here. Right. And then so we get to the club, we do our rehearsal and, um, you know, uh, back then you don't realize how many fans you have in certain areas and demographics, right? We had this place packed and they had projectors and they had an after party. It was just the most amazing crowd. I felt so much. Much love. Uh, they fed us really well. I just the Fresno. I I'm there with you. I had a great time. I love Fresno. We got to play there twice. Um, it's just, you know, they had an outdoor patio with this uh, canopy all set up. It was like really beautiful. I feel like it was in Hawaii. Um, wow. Those are some of my best shows. Other ones are um, meeting celebrities in LA, just random stuff. Like we'll be playing at, I think it was the Avalon and there were some celebrities up in the uh, snake room. I think there was like Vince Vaughn without any shoes on. I mean, it was just, you don't know who's out in LA. It's like, you know, and everyone's chatting with everybody. And uh, some celebrities bought us some liquor. I was like, I, it's, it's just really random. Um, another favorite of mine is in 2004 when we played um, in Miami. Uh, in Miami, it rains every day. It seems like you hear oh, yeah. a thunderstorm and then boom, you have to cover your gear and see we're still performing. But just going out on the beach at one o'clock in the morning, standing in the water, drinking a Corona, it was magical. Uh, I love traveling and I wish I would have done a lot more of it with my band. Uh, it's just times changed between 2004 and 2008. Something happened and that that happening was called EDM. Okay. Mm -hmm. EDM, I think, is what kind of changed up the evolution of music. People didn't want to see bands or into DJs at this time, right? Now I see bluegrass. I see uh, uh, folk rock music coming back. I mean, I, I don't know if you watched American Idol. It's a lot of really good 
folk rock singers who play piano, who play guitar very well. We're coming back to musicians. Um, not anything against the DJs, but I really miss the live feeling of it. And that's the one thing I really enjoyed when playing is the interaction with my fans. Now, I can definitely relate to that, that interaction and everything as you were talking about that incident with the uh, rifle that actually reminded me of an <laughs> incident that I had when I was traveling with some friends of mine that were a part of a reggae band and I helped book them in a college environment in Ohio of all places, Athens, Ohio, I believe it was. But we were coming back and we had to go through West Virginia to get back to North Carolina. And I remember us stopping at a gas station and literally at the gas station, there was a um, raffle. And part of the raffle was giving away one of those shotguns that you're talking about. Because I remember because the shotgun and wait a minute, this is just too deep and everything. And I did not have as much beard, but definitely had a little bit of beard and mustache. And the guys I was traveling with were all reggae musicians with the full uh, dreads and, and nine yards and everything. So I, I just remember telling them, we're when I saw what they were raffling, I'm like, we're getting out of here now. So get whatever we're getting, and we're getting the heck of town right, right now. But yeah. definitely I can relate to you on that. And I can also relate to Miami because I used to go, this is decades ago, um, probably about 10 years ago was the last time I went, but I would go down to South Beach for the American Black Film Festival. And you're right, oh, wow. it would literally be a nice day. You might go in and it'd be nice and sunny because they had all kinds of great parties at a lot of their great clubs and everything. But you might yeah. go in and watch the film. It'd be nice and sunny. You come out, it'd be a thunderstorm and all of that. And some of the clubs were also open clubs, meaning that literally you were open to the sky. So literally some of those nighttime storms would also catch you off guard if you were in one of those clubs that was open and one of those rainstorms came around. You would just have to find some kind of cover to duck for. So definitely can relate to that. Miss Miami need to get back down to South Beach because it's definitely one of my favorite places along with New York and things of that nature and D.C., of course. But what are some of the places that if you're able to get out with your wife and your family, either with your band or just with the family that you would like to get to either globally or on a national front that you have either been to, like you've mentioned, or that you would like to get to? Oh my gosh. Oh, so many to count, man. Uh, right now I'm watching um, this thing with Stanley Tucci. I think it is uh, about Italy and the different foods. I'd love to go to Italy. Uh, I've, I've loved to go to Spain, Ibiza. Um, also there's some great places in Mexico too. I'd love to go back to. Um, Definitely like to take the kids to New York and Chicago. Um, real quick story. You actually, you were asking about a moment that I had. Right. There was a moment where I took a train from, uh, what's the state with the cheese? Um, just drawing a blank. Wisconsin? Wisconsin. Took a, a train from Wisconsin to Chicago. And I kept, I had my earbuds in. I was listening to Muddy Waters. And it just, you know, because that was like stomping territory, you know, Muddy Waters and yeah. Chicago. Uh, and then so we actually actually put together we're, we were doing house music, but we're musicians first. So we put together like this really cool little jazzy, funky thing and we played it for everybody. And so you're going from like 127 to like boom, 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 boom. And we just saw the crowd like vibe. This is a house music crowd and they were feeling it. Uh, okay. There's some video up on my YouTube page somewhere uh, that shows us playing, but yeah, definitely would like to take the kids to Chicago uh, just because I've been there several times. I played smart bar out there. If you're a house music DJ out there, if you don't play smart bar, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Got to play smart bar. Chicago house scene is where it's at, man. I'm telling you, uh, but definitely New York because um, I've never been to New York. I skipped out of New York, went to Chicago, straight over to Miami. 
um, or yeah, and so I never got a chance to visit New York, and I've always wanted to see it. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, New York would definitely be a great place to go to visit and everything. I know one of the things that I oftentimes talk to the folks that I've interviewed and everything about is something that you just alluded to, which is kind of how that Sound got away from the live sound. And I do agree with you that the live sound is coming back. But there was a time that a lot of people were doing the lip syncing or they were doing the mixing. And nothing wrong with mixing and adding right. some of the elements into the music if you're going to do it correctly and everything. Right. But it seemed to have gotten away from the live performance element. So I was just wondering your thoughts. as to whether we're going back into more live performances. Like, I'm a big fan of, uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, young lady that's the jazz artist whose um, Spaulding is her last name, but uh, um, and uh, it begins with an E, but it's not coming to me right now. But she does, like, a lot of the violin work and things of that nature, and she's a jazz artist, and I've definitely been following her music for a while, as well as some of these other kind of musicians like her and everything. Oh, um... but, uh, uh, Esperanza, yeah, Esperanza, that's right. Esperanza, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come back to the pre recorded interview that I did with. Andrew Lozano, uh, definitely a great conversation and always uh, glad to be able to do that, have those amazing conversations. And definitely we shared a lot about music and we'll come back with more of that, if not later on today, definitely uh, in a upcoming edition of uh, Mullins Music and Memories. But glad to have uh, Stormy Lewis join us and she's got all kinds of amazing things going on in her world as well. So like I said, I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of folks through the the uh, platform called Potted that lets you learn about different folks that are doing great things and all of that. And Stormy is known as the story sharing guru and definitely glad to have her on. And I understand that she's a multi-published author and she's got something called the Sophia Lee Trilogy. So I'm interested in learning about that since I am a big fan of uh, thrillers and definitely have always been a fan of thrillers, whether it's being a fan of the old Miami Vice and also things like Criminal uh, Mind and a number of other shows that are out there in that criminal TV world and in that thriller TV world and all of that. And of course, she's got other parts of her story as well, because she's not afraid to talk about some of the things that she's been involved in that make her who she is, including um, being something that I know we've actually had another guest that was talking about this as well. And that was a guest we had on last week that was talking about their people pleasing uh, things that are happening in their life and how they've been fighting that as well. And of course, we all know sometimes I was actually talking to a young man in his 30s, and he has actually written a book on the show that I do earlier today. He was talking about some of the mistakes that he's made in his life and how that was the first book he wrote was the mistakes that he made, including he felt like uh, losing his virginity at a very young age, at like 18 or something like that. But that 
make, make him become the better person that he is and all of that. But a lot of times he feels that there are even the young folks that are feeling that they're not doing things that they should and that they're not doing things because they're being rushed into it. And I know definitely when we get older and I'm in my late 50s, we oftentimes do things along that line. So it was just interesting hearing him say that about himself. And he's only, I think, said he's about to turn 30 later on this year and everything. So definitely a part of the millennial crowd. And he was already saying that he's finding things that he's doing that even at the young age of 18 or when he was a teenager, he felt was wrong and he's trying to learn from those lessons. And I know that if you're in a bad situation in terms of marriage or relationships or whatever, we all try to learn from those. And that's some of the, some of the things that Stormy talks about. So glad to have you on here with me, Stormy. Glad to meet you like face-to-face or best as we can face-to-face in this new virtual world and all of that. So yeah. glad have you here and for you to share your story about the trilogy and about a number of the other things that you are very passionate about. So tell folks a little bit here on the international broadcast media about your story in your words. I told the words as I heard them from Potted, but you know, it's always better if you hear from the people themselves. Uh, yes. So I am the, uh, grew up on Miami Vice generation. Good touch. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was born unknowingly bipolar and I didn't figure it out until I took psychology in college. And even then it was trying to get other people to believe what I was trying to tell them. Um, but I have a hodgepodge of a resume, as I like to say. Um, I was a professional dancer, sign language interpreter, dancing cocktail server, bartender. I mean, (laughs) I spent seven years in Vegas and everything is independent contracting. So one day you'd be, you know, in the hospital interpreting for the deaf and then, you know, dressing up as a cowgirl to pass out flyers in front of the Frontier Hotel, which isn't even there anymore, and uh, hair modeling for Paul Mitchell. Um, But along the way, because I couldn't really control how I always reacted, um, I actually overcompensated and decided I would try to control everything else in my life. And so it really turned into more of a people-pleasing addiction than just a habit. Um, And that also ended up putting me in a couple of toxic relationships. And um, when I was married the second time, um, he was ex-military. He had just come back from war and he was over in Iraq and that didn't do well for him and then his brother passed shortly after um and he just spiraled out of control and um i ended up eventually getting to the point where i knew i had if i didn't leave i had to save myself because he just didn't want to at that point anymore and so i left and i was doing business admin as my second degree, because I'd, I'd gotten degrees in sign language interpreting, but they back then didn't have a bachelor's program for that. It was just two associates. So I went back and got my bachelor's. Um, I ended up switching to do marketing and management. And in the process, I had started a blog because I knew that the only way to really start to break that people-pleasing addiction would be to 
change my habits and everything else. So I started getting on Groupon and I would do random things that I wouldn't normally do. Like I went and took an archery class and I went and did a yoga class. And then she said, hey, we're going to Belize for a year. Come with us or not for a year, for a week. Oh, a year would have been amazing. Um, But she was like, come with us and you can do it for your blog. So I thought about it for three days and then got on a plane and showed up and she didn't tell me it was kind of a couple's trip. So I showed up all by myself <laughs> and was just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> so, Wait a minute. You showed up as the one single person in the middle of the a couple strip? I was single person in the couple strip. <laughs> but it was fine. Everybody was really nice to me. And, um, and every time I turned around, they were like, you got to do this for the blog. And I was like, mm, I don't think I need to eat a termite in the middle of the jungle. I think I'm good. But I did menti fresh in case you were wondering um i'm afraid of heights so i kind of bear crawled and butt scooted down the tallest mayan temple but i still did it and even as a kid i almost drowned so in the shower like i'm not if water hits my face i'm grabbing a towel immediately because i can't stand to have water on my face and i actually went snorkeling while i was down there for a little bit so then Um, I really wanted to put this all together in a book and I really wanted to share what nobody knew what was happening behind closed doors. And so for spring break um, that semester, I put together this whole book and had a friend edit it. And when I got ready to publish it, he finally passed. And then I was like, Oh, (laughs) do I put this out? (laughs) Because I mean, he wasn't a terrible person. He just had a lot of demons and he suffered from the vodka flu and it was what it was. But, um, you know, when he was sober, he was great. He just didn't want to be sober anymore by the time he got back. And I can't say like, I can't judge him for that because I don't know what he saw. I, I, I can only imagine. And so I talked to a friend who like was totally blown that all of this had been going on anyway. Some people knew um, people at my work just because he would come up there and it would just be raiding out of his pores. Like you could smell it so badly. He was just sweating alcohol. Um, And so, but I did try to hide it as much as possible. And, um, And then I just decided that if I could convince one person to walk away from that situation and feel like they could be okay, that it had to be published. So I put it on Amazon and I published it. And I didn't know, like I had a marketing degree, but marketing a book is a whole different story. And I didn't know it was a whole different world. Um, So... At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. 
proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. I wrote a second book after that, which was kind of a thank you card because a lot of my family members and people that had helped raise me were starting to get Alzheimer's and things like mm -hmm. that. And I just wanted them to know how much I appreciate how they made me who I was. And then I kind of took a break because I finished school and I was working multiple jobs to pay down that glorious student loan debt that you incur for that those pieces of paper back there so yeah. um, and then COVID hit and for me I really feed off of other people's emotions um, mm -hmm. so I was doing customer service for travel insurance and you know by the time somebody got to you they were just so needing to kind of get off their frustrations i mean mm -hmm. they they were not being able to travel they were being forced into lockdown and they were very angry and they were very mean and i got i got it but for me i needed to have something to really balance me out because i would not do well um so i first started you'll see i still have christmas lights up oh, yeah. <laughs> so my whole room is covered in christmas lights to kind of help um, but I really needed something to balance me out and I was kind of itching to write again. And mm -hmm. so I talked to a friend again and, and this friend was like, well, why don't you write the continuation of surviving the storm? And I said, well, cause I've just been working. There's not been a lot to add to it. You know, I didn't yeah. feel like I'd really done much. And my mom, a couple of weeks before that, had mentioned, um, we love Nora Roberts. And so she had stated, well, maybe you can do fiction. And so my friend asked what kind of stories I had. And I told her about something I'd started back in middle school, which is how the Sophie Lee trilogy became, because I typed up a couple of pages. And then my friend that lives here in the apartment complex, he was like, you have to make this a trilogy. And I was like, it's not even a whole book. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> a trilogy. But the idea just, I really liked taking on that challenge. And I knew that it would prolong the story that I wasn't quite ready to end just yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's helped me have something that like, when I get off work, I can focus on that. And and then I started my podcast, um, which is Bookish Chatter. So for anyone that is just starting their author journey, um, we I bring in different experts um, and different authors because I just remember how lonely that journey was when I put out my first book. And if I could save somebody from that, I wanted to. So yeah. I just started that and I actually coach people um, and help them get their stories published because it's really important to share our stories because they change lives. So, yeah, they definitely change lives. And one of the things that um, there's so many things that, as you were talking, were crossing my mind in terms of questions. But one of them was you mentioned that you didn't find out till later in life 
about the fact that you are um, bipolar and uh, things of that nature. And I can actually relate because while I don't have the bipolar uh, situation, I do have dysgraphia, which is a form of dyslexia. It's why when yeah. people ask me left and right, it takes me a minute to figure out which way is left and which way is right. I have to like think a little bit longer than the average person in that sense. But it wasn't diagnosed till well after I had graduated high school and college. And I'm now in my late 50s. But I want to say it was maybe when I was in my late 20s to early 30s is when they actually discovered it and everything. So I'd gone through the whole college situation, had gone through yeah. grade school, had definitely, you know, always had a chicken scratch of a handwriting and never knew exactly the reasoning behind it and everything of that nature. So I guess the question I was going to ask you is, do you think that we do a good job in our school system? Because we have one of our shows that we do here is called Learning Unwrapped. And I sometimes think that we don't do a good job, but I'd love to know your perspectives of this, of dealing with um, different mental aspects of education. Because I know I've even got friends that are in the education field. And it seems to me that there was a time that we would sometimes, you know, prescribe people to get certain medicines. And while I'm not knocking medicines to help balance life and everything, sometimes the kid would just be in hyper and we might be giving them Ritalin and things of that nature. So I was just wondering your thoughts as to how we're doing in terms of the school system, being able to deal with various kinds of aspects of different ailments, whether it's being bipolar, whether it's dysgraphia, whether it's dyslexia, whether it's a number of things that our school system has to deal with, with our students and even our college kids. I will tell you that back in the day, part of the reason why I didn't get treated, um, my mom was actually the school health aide. So she was Mm -hmm. the nurse and she medicated those kids. And some of them would be so medicated, they were drooling, they couldn't function. And I do know that it is very difficult to medicate kids. Um, I'm like you, Um, my brain, the way it's wired, I do require medication, but I also do the therapy regularly. And I have what I like to call my bag of tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, certain tricks and of the trade, I guess you could say that I've learned along the way that work best for me. Um, and it was really adapting. Now, as for nowadays, I think back then it was different. Um, and there were still those kids that were really hyper. I was hyper, but I could still behave in class. And I had, I have ADHD, like nobody's business. <laughs> But I could still, like, I learned really quickly. When your mom works for the school district, I'll just say you learn really quickly how to behave in a classroom. So it is doable. (laughs) But um, it was a different generation. Now I've had a lot of friends that have kids that are kind of in that. Um, And the school system... It saddens me a little um, because I feel like now it's more of a, if some kid is hyper, then let's just give them drugs and let's push them, put them in a resource class. And um, I had an ex-boyfriend that had a a daughter and uh, she does have ADHD, but like she's not had to figure out how to not make it a weakness in fact she spent like the whole couple of years that i was with them 
she used it as and played victim just to get out of doing things mm -hmm. and i just so I'm a little torn. Like I'm all about getting kids help a hundred percent, but to a certain extent, I feel like a lot of things nowadays are just like, here's a label, here's some meds, but nobody's really teaching them how to not look at it as a handicap and a way to get out of doing things quite as much. Mm -hmm. Whereas we had to kind of figure it out ourselves. I wish there was a little more, and I haven't actually been in the school system for a while. Um, I did interpret a lot um, when I was doing the sign language, um, and it just, it seems like it's its viewed as being easier that way, but then mm -hmm. the kid suffers in the end. Yeah, no, I so. definitely agree with you on that and everything. The other thing that I was curious about, and there's something else that you mentioned in your profile and everything is the whole concept and i've had a couple of guests including like i said the one last week that talked about it and i would argue the young millennial that i had on the other show earlier today kind of touched on and everything which is this concept of people pleasing but part of that is also what i call um not being uh satisfied in and of yourself because i think part of what we do is that we need to be comfortable within our own body and comfortable within our own self no matter what is going on in our lives but i do think that sometimes in relationships and that's what i was talking to mr ernest about and everything and he was even agreeing with me that sometimes we get into that settling mode so you know like i said you may know and you may have even recognized the sign of the toxic relationship whatever those signs were and everything but you know you don't feel like um even though the person may be um, and I'm just going to use this kind of like reference and everything, a B or C person, if we got like A, B, and C being the kind of people that we would like to be in our life with A being the top kind of individual for us. So like the A for us, but we settle for the B or the C because we feel that we can't live up to the qualifications of the A and everything. So I was wondering, is that something that you've dealt with? Well, so the reason... Like I said, I think my people-pleasing came more from... Like I got bullied a ton and kids learned really quickly that they could push my buttons and set me off. And I didn't know how to not get out of control. So like I like I would just I get so overwhelmed with emotions that most of the time I didn't even know what to do with myself. Um, and so for me, I think like even and my mom will tell you like growing up i'd go to the dance studio because i lived there mostly as much as i did the school and um that was my outlet and that was great especially when i was manic and i had like way too much energy i could go burn it off in a healthy way without i mean i again i wasn't medicated till i was 22 but um like I would purposely go back to the kids that like bullied me all the time because I knew I just had to figure it out that I could get them to like me for who I actually was and not my uh, outburst, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't figure out how to do it. So then I did notice that as I started getting into relationships, it wasn't so much that I didn't feel like I was maybe worthy per se to be in that A category. It was more so 
I can't save myself sometimes. Like I can't control my emotions. I can't control my reactions. And so anybody that I feel like I can't, at least back then, if I could help them and I became a real big, like I am that huge helper. I, I always was like that anyway. Like I was a teacher's pet, you know, cause I was always asking for extra homework and helping out the teachers. Cause my mom worked for the school district and I would stay after class. And I just, I naturally am one of those quote helpers by nature. Right. But for me, like, it made me feel better about myself if I could help other people because I knew I couldn't always help myself or at least that's kind of how I viewed it, I think. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to the point um, during our marriage, um, he was so miserable and he used to say, you know, I'll just kill myself, which you know, being in that mental world, most people that talk about it a heck of a lot usually are just saying it for attention and they'll never do anything. And he was kind of in that category. He just wanted the attention, but it was never something he would be able to do himself. And I knew that. But like my thought was, please do so we can both be free. And that thought just disgusted me to my core. I'd never hated myself so much in my life and I walked to the bathroom and I just looked in the mirror and just cried and that was kind of that turning point where I was like okay if I if I can't save myself then I, this is not going to end well for me right. and so I started doing the process where I still kind of gave him those opportunities to make better choices mm -hmm. but eventually I was just like if I don't if I don't stop this vicious cycle, it's going to be me. That's not going to be here anymore. Right. So. Do you think some of that was, because I've heard sometimes people pleasers, and I know I've been guilty of it as well, sometimes have that little bit of a um, fixer mentality where you sometimes want to fix the people yes. that you're with and everything. I still and you do can't... that. Yeah. Yeah. I still wanted to do that. And that because I can't fix myself. I will forever be bipolar. It's not something that will ever go away. It is something I will have for the rest of my life. Um, like the ADHD, although the ADHD isn't the thing that draws attention to me right. more often than not. It, it was, you know, not knowing that even back then, like, I would get so high. I, I, I can always tell because I start, like, talking really fast. Um, and I know I'm getting really high because I'm not one to cuss very often, but I suddenly get Tourette's and then I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so that's kind of one of my signs where I'm like, okay, something's off. Um, and you know, and then I knew the lows of not being like, I would have to fight with myself just to drag myself out of bed. And these are just the things that are going to happen for the rest of my life. I will always have those suicide thoughts that come with it. And mm -hmm. it's just a part of it. And there's nothing I could do. So I think, again, because I was so frustrated, I couldn't fix myself. I, in turn, did so extreme at trying to find other people that I could fix. Because then... 
I don't know if part of it was there, like if they would give me that appreciation, if that would be like, okay, I'm still a good person because for the longest time, I mean, when you're given something like this, it's hard not to be viewed as being cursed or like you kind of look to the sky and go, what did I ever do for you? Like, what did I ever do to deserve this? And then it wasn't until I walked away and I kind of started, I really had to learn to love myself a lot more. And this is actually, I didn't even, I still grew up with the mentality of don't ask, don't tell when it came to being bipolar. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until about 2019, 2020 that I actually started saying, you know what, the, it never felt right not to talk about it. And in fact, when I first got diagnosed, I told everybody. And then I realized what my parents meant by don't ask, don't tell, because mm -hmm. I would get fired right and left because it has such a negative stigmatism. But what they don't understand is how conscious I am of it, that I work very hard to maintain that stability. Now that's not to say it won't get away from me occasionally, but I, I very highly function even though I have all this, but it's the ones that are shaving their heads and running up and down the street naked that unfortunately that's kind of the label and the picture that goes in most people's minds. So. Yeah, that makes sense. What advice would you give to folks? Cause I mean, you've definitely been in some, what some people would consider high pressure jobs. Cause you mentioned that you had done some work in the uh, dance world. You've definitely done work in Vegas, which there's nothing, there's no doubt that that's a high pressure city and everything. So what kind of advice would you give to folks in the work environment? If they've got somebody that is an employee or a friend or just a coworker that is also dealing with uh, bipolar issues and also somebody that's going to be, and I don't know your current status, but if somebody was to get involved in a relationship with somebody that's in those bipolar situations, what would your advice be to folks that are going to deal with them either on the social level or on the professional level? Uh, everybody is different. Um, so for me, like I am very repetitive. I talk a lot but I repeat myself a lot. And so some people are like, yeah, I know. And it's because I'm still processing it mm -hmm. um, because of the misfires and stuff. Um, but really, the best advice I can have is to know your strengths and weaknesses first and foremost, whether it's work or a relationship, because that will give you perspective of what you can offer. Um, I was a hugger hugging which we can't do now <laughs> but uh, you know just that you know gentle pat on the back um praising when they actually do things good um because our mind battle isn't very positive so that's why we thrive to get some sort of recognition and it's not about being an attention person, you know, or, or anything like that. I mean, realistically, every day, every minute, every second is a battle and none of it <laughs> is ever me going, you know what? You're pretty good. Awesome. High five. Usually it's like, well, you could have done this right. You could have done that right. Like I am just always, um, and I mean, I started off dancing where, you know, 
I, I have a sister and there was a competition where I got judged by a judge and it was an interview by the ballet judge that loved my sister. And for the however minutes I was in there, it felt like an eternity, but a lot of it was, well, you're not as skinny as your sister is. You're not as tall. You don't have her ballet technique and stuff. And so it was really, I mean, I already get that in my head to hear it mm -hmm. from so many other people. Um, but it's, the thing about being bipolar is, is that we feed off of emotions. So mm -hmm. the most you can do is like, my problem is, is especially about September to about February, I have seasonal depression. Most of us do um, because of the upper anxiety about, mm -hmm. you know, holidays coming and that's my favorite time of the year, ironically enough, yeah. but it's where I struggle the most. And so like for me, cause like I said, everybody's different, but like if I'm in an argument with somebody, I usually have to walk away. I have to remove myself and calm mm -hmm. down because then I have to evaluate and see if I'm mad about something. Cause if it's still lingering after I calm down, and something's still bothering me, then I know I have a legit reason to be mad. But sometimes I get so caught up in what's going on around me that it's just impossible. So if I get caught in an angry mob, whether I'm like as happy as can be, I'm gonna be calm as angry because people kind of, you know, push off. It's like it, when you think about superpowers, it's like a wave of emotions and I just feel it all. And so at T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price with Magenta Max. You get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch and bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks only at T-Mobile. <laughs> device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at tmobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Allowing somebody to take the space that they need, or maybe even suggesting, that's been a hard thing for partners I've been with. They want to keep coming and keep talking about whatever is bothering them, but because they're up here, I can't remain down here. I'll match them and then I don't know if there's a problem or not or if I'm just feeding. So I always tell them, and, I, and I'm honest when I get first in a, a relationship, and I'll tell a few people at work, people that I know I can trust, mm -hmm. um, because I will ask them if I feel really emotional, I'll be like, let me give you the scenario and you tell me <laughs> because sometimes I can't always see if it's something to be really upset about or not at all. 
So I tell relationships and I tell coworkers, I'm like, hey, here's my situation. If I come to you, just be honest. It may not register right away. Give me a little bit of time. But once it registers, I'll be able to see it clearly. But I can't always see it. And it, when it's in a relationship, I always tell them, let me walk away. You have to let me walk away because I have to not be feeding the added emotions. And like I said, see if what we're arguing about is something to be arguing about or if I'm just caught up in some sort of emotional roller coaster. So those are kind of the biggest things for me is I have to talk things out. I'll repeat myself a ton. I have to walk away to kind of calm down and kind of get back to being stable before we can continue this conversation. And that seems to be something that doesn't go well or for other people. No, <laughs> but it's, it's just what I have to do. No, and different people have different things that they got to work with. I've got a uh, co-worker, one of the places that I work at, um, and actually we're just now getting back to doing work over the last month, is a test grading company um, and uh, called Measurement Incorporated. But they grade the end of the year tests. And so that's my foray into the education field, even though my parents, well, both my mom and her sisters were all involved in some form of fashion of uh, education, whether that was my late aunt that was a school principal and a teacher or another aunt that is a teacher and another aunt that has been a, a librarian on the uh, university level. And of course, mom was a guidance counselor before becoming involved in the nonprofit world, but that's neither here nor there. But one of the things I was going to say is that um, one of my coworkers, he's got Asperger's, um, kind of what people call the uh, Forrest, uh, Gump syndrome and everything. And he's mm -hmm. amazing, just like Forrest Gump was and everything in terms of knowing a lot of statistics. Like he knows all about these minor league statistics in baseball and I would say even in basketball and some other things. And a lot of folks would think that that isn't of all that much interest, but he does dazzle the crowd with those statistics. Sometimes, uh, sometimes only dazzles the crowd in the, the opinion of some and everything. But one of the things I've learned about that particular element is that there's also some uh, spatial elements that go on in that yes. um, particular thing as well. So sometimes, you know, you have to tell him diplomatically that he's infringing on people's faith because people, yeah. as a general rule, like their space. And they also, and I can be just as guilty as somebody that doesn't, that does not have that particular ailment, uh, but I do know that he can also be guilty of being what I call a crush kid, meaning that he develops crushes very quickly and everything. Yeah. So that can also play into the whole space element as well. So, you know, you have to like diplomatically tell him what's allowed and what's not allowed within the, the work environment because you don't want him to get in trouble. But at the same oh, time, no. the work yeah. environment has to understand what's going on as well. Yeah. So, that's why I, I tell, like, if I have to tell HR, I'll tell HR, but there you can, I'm really good at judging people and I can usually peg out pretty quickly who would be somebody that I could go to and say, hey, you know, like, if you see me really upset, these are the things we need to do <laughs> and then I need to calm down and stuff. Um, so there are certain things, um, like I said, though, everybody, everybody's different because especially, I mean, I used to work with deaf kids who were always in the disabled classes. So there was autism and, you know, cerebral palsy and all of that stuff. And just like anything else, there's always different levels. And because it is your brain, people don't realize how much your 
chemical makeup changes constantly in your brain. So you could be on medications and then suddenly they just stop working for you. It's kind of like taking an allergy pill that no longer works with you for you because you've taken it a couple of years. But with things like bipolar disorder, usually medications don't last a couple of years. Sometimes they do, but usually you're pushing a dosage up or down. And unfortunately, a lot of those meds have some sort of side effects. Weight gainage is a huge thing, which is really, it's hard because like anything else, when you gain enough weight, like your bones hurt and stuff, and some of them make you shake. And I, you kind of have to play with it and you have to be willing to play with it um, to know what you're willing to accept to kind of be normal is a terrible word, but to be able to function properly. Um, but yeah, there's, it's just, it's forever changing. So like, I'm not using the same bag of tricks that I was when I was a kid. I mean, some of them, but most of them I've had to alter as I got older because my makeup is always changing. And so it's just always figuring out and then COVID hit. And for me, I'm fine being by myself. I've been single for a while and um, I kind of like my personal time, but when it was not a choice per se, <laughs> that kind of made it a little bit different. And it turns out that I have a harder time being locked up um, for long periods of time. So I had my anxiety went up. Um, I, I've always had anxiety, but I feel like this has been the worst of the worst. Um, and so it's taken me a long time to, I have to talk myself out of making myself sick and giving myself an ulcer. Um, there's just a lot of things that I have to do. So like now that social media is a thing, um, especially I mean, when COVID hit and Black Lives Matters was going on and everything, like everything was just so angry and negative. And so I don't really watch the news very often. Um, and at six o'clock, I shut everything down. Um, my phone, everything I'll watch. <laughs> I love that you brought up Criminal Minds. I love that show. And I'll actually watch it before bed. So I'm not sure what that says about me, but I love the show. <laughs> so I'll watch a couple of episodes and then I'll go to bed. But yeah, I can't, I can't be interacting with people um, on social media. Now, Instagram, I love Instagram and that's where I'm at predominantly, but I find Facebook has a little more where people will really kind of come at you for just about anything. And I found yeah. that the community on Instagram is a lot friendlier. So that's where I stay. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you actually mentioned something that uh, I've been, been arguing for a while and I was wondering your perception of this and everything. But, you know, we talk about in society and I mean society in general, this concept of normality. And I don't know the saying that I used to say and is that I don't know what normality is and I don't know that I would necessarily want to meet either a normal or a sane person because I think that most of us have some level of insanity in our life and if we met a totally sane person we probably wouldn't know what to I do. I wouldn't know them. what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I you know now it, I kind of laugh it off and I make more of a joke and and uh, if 
somebody brings something up, I'm like, hey, I'm crazy. I don't know what to tell you, you know, kind of thing. And the more I could kind of come to terms with this wasn't just something that was forced on me and for no reason. So now I really, I've taken the opportunity to make it an asset more so of looking at it as like any kind of impairment. I mean, do, do I have bad days? Yeah, but so does everybody. So I try not to beat myself up anymore as much as I used to. Um, like I said, I've really worked hard to kind of surround myself with the right people too. Um, I have certain go-to people that, you know, will at two o'clock in the morning, if I'm up and I'm really upset about something, I can call and they'll talk me off the ledge and then I can go to sleep and it's great. Um, you know, so as many of those people as you can stack in your life, the better. But yeah, it just, it's been an adjustment. And even though I've always dealt with it, it was always kind of a taboo subject. And now I'm just to the point where, and I don't know if it's because I'm older now, but I just, I don't think it should be something that we should feel bad about. And I think that by the more I talk about it, then maybe that will help somebody else not feel like they're cursed um, because there are workarounds. Um, are we perfect? No, but nobody is. And that's why I am such an advocate and I coach um, a lot of people into sharing their stories because that's the thing like even growing up as a kid like books saved my life when i was too wired and couldn't sleep i was under the covers with a flashlight reading books and by the second grade i had literally read every single book in our school library and yeah. so then the librarian would just give me the books and be like i'll keep whatever you like because you got good taste and i was like yeah i do <laughs> so um so i like books were how i just really survived and when i was too sad like i could always get lost in somebody else's story so now i try to really and you know, encourage others to share their stories because you don't know what person is waiting to find their author. And it doesn't have to be just nonfiction of sharing a traumatic story. I mean, my fiction books have actually inspired my 65 year old father. He's on his second book. I'm publishing his first one for him. Mm -hmm. And that was something that he never thought of doing, but he saw me start doing the Sophie Lee trilogy and now he's writing his second one while I'm working on publishing this first one. And, and it's something that we can bond over, but it, it's something that now gives him joy at a much later stage in his life. So you just never know. Your story could be maybe saving that bipolar kid that doesn't know right. yet how to handle their emotions. And your story is helping them to survive, you know, again, it doesn't have to be just some sort of traumatic or motivational nonfiction story. So I just like to always encourage, you know, you, your story is going to change somebody's life. You may not know how, and you may not get that recognition of how you change a life, but I promise you there is somebody waiting for your story. And by not sharing your story, you're actually not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting that person that is waiting to get that story that's gonna motivate them to keep going. 
No, definitely doing that. One of the things, and um, my friend who's a musician actually is been diagnosed like yourself as being bipolar. He even admits that he's been bipolar and everything, but he's still pursuing his music career and all of that. But he was very much adamantly, and he did his show yesterday on this platform, and then we did the producer's roundtable, which I host right immediately after his show. But one of the things that he was adamant about was the whole conversation between Oprah and um, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And part of the reason he was adamantly against it was he felt that they kind of used their celebrity to put the issue at the forefront, but that they did it in kind of a warped way. And I kind of like paraphrasing it everything because yeah. they're doing it while they're, you know, in their million dollar dresses and not right. necessarily encouraging people to do it on a more grounded kind of way, like what you're doing and what Zach does and everything. But I was wondering your thoughts about that when you see these major celebrities and it can be Meghan Markle, it can be some of the other ones that have come out of the world of entertainment and acting, they get to go to these expensive uh, wellness clinics and these expensive other things, and but don't really do it in such a way that the person that's facing these issues that's on the streets of Durham, where I'm at, or on the streets of the different other cities can necessarily relate to. So I'm just wondering your thoughts when you hear somebody like a Meghan Markle say that she's gone through periods of depression and periods of mental illness. Now, so here's the thing. I think um, that we should never downgrade no matter what their status is, because realistically, I mean, I've been at the deepest of the lows. Um, I've had the suicidal thoughts. Um, some days I've had them multiple times and I've had to, you know, when once I started taking meds, I would have to call and say, change something <laughs> like I'm not doing okay. So I don't think that status necessarily should, um, you know, like downgrade what anybody goes through, um, mostly because I've been the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and swinging everywhere in the middle. And I, I think, I mean, I get what you're saying when they go to like the rehab clinics and it's like a vacation home on an island and stuff like that. I mean... Yeah, that is what it is. Um, I don't I don't like to say that anybody's journey is any less than anybody else's um, because it may not you may not feel like it's a less degree to what you've been through because they seem so unrealistic. But um, the, they probably do know more about what you're going through. Um, I think that's why I encourage everybody to share their story. Because, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice because, like, when I wanted to tell people and then I was getting fired was about the time there was a soap opera um, general hospital and the character mm -hmm. that plays Sonny on there, he came out um, and said he was bipolar and he still talks about it today. Um, and Kathleen Zeta-Jones had just mm -hmm. come out about that time. Um, and so it was nice for me because I wanted to sell somebody. And when I did, I was getting fired. They weren't in that position. But it was nice that somebody with a higher standard was still talking about it because it made it more real for other people. You know, poor Britney Spears, love the girl to death. I don't think I would ever have shaved my head, but 
I mean, she was definitely on the struggle bus, but things like that made it known to more people and it made it more, not necessarily real, but you know what I'm saying? Like more aware of what was going on now. Um, when I write my story, I'm not that I'm a nobody, but clearly I'm not on national news. So it may resonate with somebody that doesn't, you know, live in a mansion because I was the ginger trailer park girl growing up. And um, so I don't think that it really is as much as I think it still brings awareness. I think, you know, it's when they go into rehab <laughs> and it's like, a really fancy place. Whereas I've been to the mental wards because I used to, again, interpret for deaf kids. And some of them do end up there after they get the cochlear implant because they go from hearing nothing to hearing everything. And it, it does drive some people insane. So like I've seen the kids drooling and, you know, not being able to function and things like that. So the... I think what we need to focus on is the actual journey and we shouldn't judge people about their status. I mean, kudos to them for being in the millions. Would I like to be there? Heck yeah. Would everybody like to be there? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that her depression is fake or less valuable because she has more money. I think that the more everybody talks about it, the more people will realize that it doesn't need to have that state, you know, negative label to it. And I think that's what we need to focus on is not who's telling their story, but just that people are telling their story. Yeah, because I think the other stigma that exists, particularly within the bipolar community, and I was wondering your thoughts on this, is the fact that it is so attached to another growing population which exists in the United States, which is the homeless population. And we think about the veterans and the other folks that are homeless. And oftentimes when you get there and you actually engage them in conversation, they will either tell you that they're on bipolar medication or they will exhibit symptoms that let you know it without them telling you and things of that nature. But then that's a subset of society and a subset that we try to unfortunately sweep underneath the rug and all of that. So I was just wondering, is that something that also concerns you? The fact that a lot of times people associate bipolarism and definitely a lot of the other aspects of that with the homeless population, which is a very pressing issue, not just in the United States, but globally. Right. I think, again, that comes from not enough people sharing their story because, again, I'm very highly functional. I can hold down a job. I can do a lot of things. I mean, I'm doing a podcast, I'm coaching and I'm writing my books and I still work. Like I can do all of these things, but because not enough people like me are coming out, it seems like you've got the low of lows and then the celebrities, but there's really not a whole lot in the middle. So a lot of people aren't realizing how much this affects people and it's generational um it sometimes can skip a generation which is great hallelujah didn't happen to me i'm 100 percent, unfortunately but it runs in the family and i've seen people you know take their lives and just because they don't know like for me it's a little weird 
And I don't know if I explain it very well, but when I have a suicidal thought, instead of going, ooh, I need to focus on that, because that's what happens, why a lot of people commit suicide is because they'll get those thoughts and then they'll listen to them and they'll start focusing on them. And then they get to that planning stage. And then once you get there, you really can't come back. Whereas for me, if I have one, I'm like, oh, that's one. Oh, that's two. Oh, let's call the psychiatrist. <laughs> like I just count them and I. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks don't pay much attention. And even as a kid, even when I had them, it was one of those things that I kept telling myself, that's not really me. I like, I kind of characterized it as almost a split personality that that was kind of the bad me. And then this was normal me. And I just had to figure out how to work the two together. So I think, again, if more people actually felt like they could talk about it, and I think the younger generation coming up because they are so used to having some sort of label these days, ADHD, bipolar, um, I've heard like when people that are like in their 20s are going for job interviews, they're like, yeah, I'm bipolar, and they don't have a problem saying that. So I think because there's not a lot of people in the middle, because if you think about it, our generations don't talk about anything. We still don't talk about it in my family very often. It's not something that we bring up very often. Um, they get uncomfortable, they don't wanna talk about it. And I think it's just a generational thing. So maybe this, you know, always wanting to be on YouTube, always wanting to come out, always wanting to share who they are, maybe that will bridge that gap you know, eventually, but I think right now there's still too many that are so used to not sharing their stories. So that's why I'm always encouraging no matter what your story is to share it, because I think the more we can bring light to the people that can function, because like I said, you know, especially with bipolar disorder, it's tied to the homeless. That's what's on TV. The celebrities are on TV and the people that are running naked maxing out credit cards and shaving their heads are the ones that are on TV, but nobody talks about the ones that have it and function and do a really good job at it. Yeah, definitely. And it's actually interesting that you said what you said about the young generation, because that's one of the things that I was talking to uh, Ernest about on the first podcast and everything. But I'm actually of the opinion, and I'd love to know your thoughts as you are in your uh, 
mid thirties now and everything, but I'm of the opinion. I'm in my forties. Forties. Well, that's not what it says on Fodit. So I'm just messing with everything. It says at 35, but yes, in your 40s, that's even better. So in your 40s, but one of the things I'm noticing from the um, folks in their 20s and 30s, and because like I said, Ernest, I think was in his 30s and everything, but one of the things I'm noticing is that they do seem to be, even Zach's daughters, and he's got two teenage daughters, well, I guess they're preteens, but they are definitely more open to like, claiming claiming their identity whatever their yeah. identity is like i know that one of his daughters um i think it's the younger one is you know very proud to say that she is a um lesbian and she's identifying that way even at that age and everything she's got um i think one of the other kids it might be that same one has had some issues where around mental health and things of that nature so they definitely seem to be much more open about whatever they want to be, whether they, whether they want to identify yeah. themselves by race, by ethnicity, by orientation, by mental health, by a number of other things. So I would argue that probably the millennials, the Generation Z, and maybe even to some degree, those that were uh, like right before, I guess that would be millennials, because right after the baby boom. The I'm ones the that started boom. eating the Tide Pods were the ones that really just kind of came out more like, I want my 15 minutes of fame. Um, and they don't. They do not hide anything. <laughs> they are very much into sharing. Um, like I said, living with a, a, a man that had a teenage daughter um, back in 2017, I mean, it was just it was eye-opening for me to see the difference of generations for sure so yeah they definitely seem to be a lot more open and i'm glad to see that openness maybe some of us that are in the older generations can learn from them and also learn about tolerance and being more open and accepting of different elements of society because i do think that some of the older generations including uh definitely the baby boomers definitely my parents uh generation as well as um Definitely those in my um, grandparents' generation and both all my grandparents oh, yeah. had and everything, but they were not as open and everything. So no. definitely, I would say that it seems that we're moving in a more positive direction of being open to a variety of attitudes and everything. Because, I mean, I think that the old attitude around mental health was a lot of the very stereotypical images that we saw in media. I'm thinking about, like, um, the movie that uh, Jack Nicholson made very famous and a couple of other movies like that and everything that painted, yeah. you know, the various mental illnesses in a very negative uh, stereotype and everything. And then do have that positive attitude, which is what I think we all need about things in general. But I was just wondering your thoughts as to how we're doing, even in the way that mass media, because it does seem that mass media, even some of our TV shows now are doing a better job of at least presenting these images in a more realistic, if not a positive, at least a realistic viewpoint. Yeah, I think uh, I think we've come a long way. I think, um, you know, I did have one psychiatrist that tried to tell me that I'd taken all of the meds and the only thing that was going to work for me was um, the electrodes like having your brain electrocuted and I was like they still do that <laughs> like, but I I was so furious and I walked out of there and I cried all the way driving back to work and I had called my then husband and I was like you would not believe what she wants for you to do and she was kind of that baby boomer generation um but yeah I like that more things are being 
talked about. Um, definitely growing up with generations, like you said that, I mean, again, we still, if I bring up anything bipolarish in my household, um, when I'm with my parents, they get very uncomfortable and the subject gets switched very quickly. And I think if we can kind of get past that, which it's kind of funny because like they were so closed off and I feel like the 20 and younger are so open <laughs> like some of it needs to there needs to be more of a happy middle um yeah. i am glad that they feel more confident and we're in a better stage of the game to be able to talk about things like transgender and things like that i think sometimes it gets taken a little too far to where it's really out of context and it loses its messaging um so that's kind of what i struggle with right now um you know, like, I just personally, and I, the, this may have people hate me or not, but I just, I always believe that you can't learn from your mistakes if you're erasing them. And so, like, I mean, we grew up reading 1984 in the schools, and I don't even think they do that anymore. And now it feels like them wanting to burn books and everything. Like, how how are we ever going to learn from mistakes if they're just taken away and we're gonna pretend that they were never there to begin with. Like, um, you know, I grew up watching Little House on the Prairie and there were certain things like, but I also understood that it was a generational thing. And I think that's what people are missing out on is that they're not realizing what was actually taking place at that time period. So again, it's about merging the two together and not just bypassing one over the other. And I think that we would learn a lot more if we could figure out how to bridge more than just saying one size right or one size wrong and things like that. Um, so I am glad that people feel comfortable enough that they can come out. Um, I'm glad I've gotten to the point where I'm like, no, we need to talk about this. But I also do it in a way where I, try to respect everybody um that and that's i think the biggest part that's kind of getting lost these days is the respect portion of yeah. who's listening who you're talking to and things like that so that kind of saddens me because then i feel like whatever's being said is not being able to be taken in and absorbed correctly no, I definitely agree with you on that and everything. I'm still trying to get past the fact of what you just said earlier, that there are folks out there that are still prescribing electric shock and uh, basically yeah. lobotomies and everything, because it seems to me yeah. that those are things that should not be even in the uh, lexicon of conversation, that those were yeah, I was really many years ago. I want to say that was like back in like 2011, but still I was like, what do you mean they still do that? Like, Because you're talking about like erasing people's memories and that doesn't cure them that just takes away their ability to remember the lessons that they've learned it's kind of like what's going on with all the taking the books away and stuff yeah. i mean certain things i understand but are you really fixing the problem if you're just taking everything away i mean they're still going to have the same issues that they have eventually it might be temporary fix but yeah i couldn't believe that either i was so furious and i never went back to that office yeah i don't blame you for not going back to that office that office sounds like they might have cases of uh needing to have some 
uh, malpractice or some other things going on because that just does not sound fair whatsoever. Um, I mentioned earlier the school systems and we touched on that to some degree. I also feel that our other institutions don't do a good job either of dealing with uh, the whole mental health in general. And sometimes they can have some of the worst offenders even doing uh, practice from the pulpit. And yes, I'm talking about the religious leaders and I don't care whether it's Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, or even the mindfulness people and everything of that nature. So I'm just wondering, where do you think we are in that sense? Because if you read the different books, there are some folks that might be even wondering about, you know, how sane some of our great religious leaders were to do the things that they did and everything. So definitely uh -huh. just wanted your own thoughts as to how our churches are doing in terms of dealing with the issues or any of the other social institutions that are out there. I mean, mostly we think of school and churches as the primary social institutions. I think um, I actually go to a very good Baptist church. I go to Life Church. And the reason why I go there is because I do find that they are very much more um, open and accept everybody. And um, I, I, I kind of snuck in the back a couple of times, but you learn really quickly where you can stay and where you can go kind of thing. Um, and so I love um, Pastor Craig and at the Life Church here in Overland Park. Um, he's in Oklahoma, but they air it here in Overland Park. And, um, but there are other churches that, um, I would not spend a lot of time in. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'd like to think that again, it's kind of, they're on a different generational range than a normal person. Like, you, we have our generations of, like, Miami Vice and all of that. But I think religion tends to be about a couple generations even behind what a normal person would have. And so sometimes it's kind of like certain people in my family. I know that they will always have their own idea of who I am. And there will be nothing I can do to ever change that because that is nothing of who I am. And so there's nothing I could talk to them till I was blue in the face. But once they've made up their minds, there's there's nothing I can do. And that just means I spend a lot less time with them. <laughs> but I understand that it's their generation, it's their beliefs, it's their whatever. I will never be able to change anything that they think of me because they've already decided and come up with some sort of picture of me and they will just sadly miss out on never getting to know the real me um and that's their loss more than mine um i used to struggle with that a lot growing up and i think um religion is kind of that way like to a certain extent like <laughs> It did kind of make me laugh because everybody was so upset about when the whole Chick-fil-A and the gays uh, and the lesbians and all of that. And I thought, I mean, I love I love my gays and my lesbians. I have so many friends. I was in theater. I mean, they're they're my favorite people. They truly are. 
Um, but and they've got way more fashion than I will ever have. Um, so they usually keep me in line. But uh, I also was like, well, they're never open on Sundays. Like, what did you really think would be the response from that owner? You know, like right. you kind of the thing is, is that you will never truly be able to convince somebody to be different. They have to make that choice on their own. And you just kind of have to get to the point where it doesn't sting as much once you can accept that they will never accept you kind of thing, because they have this misconception in their head. And until they choose to view you differently, there's really nothing you can do. It just means that you spend less time with them. And, you know, it's their loss more than anything. And you go and you spend your time with people that are worth spending time with that appreciate you for who you are, love everything that you have to offer and things like that. So it's sad. But at the same time, it's kind of like the saying, you can't save someone that doesn't want to be saved. The mm -hmm. concept is the same. You cannot change somebody's beliefs and mindset. You can try. And there's nothing wrong with trying, but just don't sacrifice yourself in the process of trying to force somebody where after a while, it's kind of like those family members, like I used to try forever. And then I got to 35 and I was just like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Life is too short. So it's just a matter of what's important to you. Do you want to waste your life trying force someone else to see you for who you are or are you just going to go out and surround yourself with the people that value you and think you're worth being around and help you grow because that's the biggest thing is you want to surround yourself with people that will help you grow and not the people that will hold you back so it's sad but at the same time i kind of use that mentality after several years of experience of trying to get people to see me for my real me I realized at about 35 years in that I was like, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, I'm tired. <laughs> so I try not to judge other people, um, mostly because I've been judged plenty in my life and will continue to be judged. Um, and that's just the way it is. But it doesn't mean that's who I have to be. So um, I guess I have a little more open of a mindset that maybe and that's why it doesn't bother me as much because I'm like Ugh. you know like certain people you're just never going to be able to convince otherwise and that's just it's kind of like those grandparents you know that you know it was their way or the highway and this cherry pie was not going to be made any other way than grandma's way you know it's kind of that mentality I hope that with the younger generation kind of coming out and feeling more about talking about their situations and things like that. I think in the long run, it'll balance itself out, but we've had so many years of just sweeping everything under the rug and not talking about it, that it's hurt us and it's gonna take us a while to heal. No, I definitely agree with you on that. I definitely also wanted to learn about your book and everything, The Protector, because I want to learn more about that book and where folks can find it and more about where folks can find your podcast as well so that they can learn about this book and both the current book, The Protector, but also about 
the podcast and the, about where they can catch the podcast. I was going to tell you as I was listening to you, I remember that, um, like I said, I'm in my late 50s, but I did date a young lady who I think is now in her early 50s. So she was, it was probably when I was turning 50 and she was probably in her 40s. So there's like a 10 year gap and we couldn't decide if part of the reason of our uh, breaking up and of uh, my ducking shoes and other things was because she was a self-avowed bipolar or because she was a Gemini because that's kind of the <laughs> similar kind of personality because Gemini's are, I think by nature are bipolar and she was both of those so I couldn't decide which one it was but whether it was the Gemini part of her personality or the bipolar part of her personality so I just went with the Gemini part. <laughs> well I will tell you I tell everybody hey I'm a handful I have my moments but I'm also very grounded and very aware. And that's what used to irritate me the most about my exes is they would do things like, oh, you're having a bipolar moment. And I'm like, I've never been more sane in my life. Like, <laughs> and, the, and so they would use it against me. And so I think that's why I'm still single. I haven't quite found that person that, um, you know, won't throw that back at my face because usually when they are doing it is because I don't agree with them or I'm speaking up going, yeah, no, not right, you know, or something like that. And so they throw that at me and try to act like, you know, I'm crazy and I'll go, no, I am crazy, but I'm still right, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a forever battle. Um, but, and there went the ADHD, oh, the books, um, yes. <laughs> I told you it happens. These long No, and I definitely want to get back to the book. I was going to share one other quick story <laughs> with you, which was that I can agree with you about the whole concept of uh, the crazy aspect or not crazy. Because, like I said earlier, I think personally that all of the world has some level of craziness. I remember that I wrote when I was in college a satire. And the satire was basically somebody that was going to a clinic, like going to a psychiatrist, and they were talking about the different issues of the world. They got to remember this was when I was in college, so we're talking the 80s. So this person was going to the clinic, they were going to the psychiatrist, and they were talking about all the different issues that were going on in the world and everything. So they were talking about climate change, they were talking about this course before COVID, so they were talking about climate change, and they were talking about race relations, they were talking about a number of other things. And the basic punchline of the story was, wait a minute, y'all are calling me crazy, what are y'all if this world is as crazy as I'm describing it? So that was kind of the punchline of the story was maybe the world is the one that's crazy and I'm the one that's sane. So well, that, I, and I it, felt bad because uh, in high school we had to read Cratcher and the Rye, and I don't know if they read that in school anymore, but they were like, this led to assassinations. And I was like, I read it and I was like, is nothing like <laughs> I, I don't understand why you think he's such a psychopath because this doesn't even happen what goes through my head so i was very welcome back to the quickest podcast ever brought to you by Coles. today's topic fall style wait wasn't it just june right so i went to Coles. of course you did i got a cute cara santana for nine west sweater for 25 percent off and a great pair of vans love vans and save 25 percent on a champion hoodie for my husband Ooh, sounds cozy you should go you'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or for details. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. 
Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. Confused by that book and how big of a deal everybody was making about it. But uh, yes, so um, Surviving the Storm was my first book. Um, a lot of it started off as my blog posts, um, my adventures in Belize being the only single person on the trip. Um, and then the last third is uh, bits and pieces of what was going on for my marriage. And I purposely put it at the end because I wanted people to realize that if I had accomplished all of this and this had already happened, that that would kind of give them the mindset that they would be okay if they walked away and I was living proof of that. So Surviving the Storm was the original book, and that's in the nonfiction category on Amazon. And then uh, the Sophie Lee Trilogy. So the key is already out, and it is on Amazon. And um, it is the start of Sophie's journey. So Sophie is early 20s. And unfortunately for Sophie, Sophie gets hit with a van and gets amnesia. So a lot of the book is figuring out bits and pieces of her life because eventually um, the man with the cane starts coming after her and tracking her. And so you find out that her parents had been murdered when she was about 10 and that Sophie's kind of a little different. She's faster. She can hear a lot of things better. Um, but it's, uh, it's about, and then her dad is a scientist and has given her a key but they don't know what the key is. They don't know where it is. And so they find the key at the very end of book one. So that's kind of the fun part about the key and doing it as a trilogy. So the protector, which comes out on May 14th, is um, the second part of the story where Sophie finds out why she's different, how she's different. Um, you find out she's been genetically altered. But you also get backstories uh, a little bit more into the other characters. So you find out that the man with the cane has been psychotic from day one and actually snaps the neck and like cr crouches, um, breaks the windpipe of the dog that was sitting around him when he was just a little kid um, just to see what would happen. And so he's kind of a creeptacular person. Um, and he's killing people right and left. And so you kind of get to see how crazy he actually is. And he has a daughter, Clarice. And she really struggles because she was raised by a psychopath. But she still has some good in her. But she kind of is struggling on which side of the line she's supposed to be on. And in the first book, you've met Tina, Ben, and James, who are these kids that find her and she falls in love with James. Um, so you get the backstories of them, where they came from. And uh, Jess and Jack are her parents. Um, the cool thing about the key was when I started writing it, we found out um, that my grandmother has a cardiovascular disease that doesn't get enough blood flow to her organs. So her brain is shutting down and her heart's shutting down. Um, and some other things. And so while I was writing it, even though it wasn't an uh, initial uh, theme of the book, um, it turns out that for the Sophie Lee trilogy, 
even if people die, they don't necessarily leave you. So there's kind of a dream realm where the dead can uh, interact with the living. So her parents have gotten to kind of interact with her still as growing up. Um, and so this is about her kind of coming into that role of being the protector because you find out that even though she was given a key, she's actually the key and she's what the man with the cane wants. So at the very end, you find out who the man with the cane is and it ties it all together. And then Dead Draw will come out for my birthday in November at the end of this year. And that will be the final battles of battles. Um, she's playing a mental game because the man with the cane has figured out how to access her mentally like her parents do. Mm -hmm. And then it'll be a physical battle at the very end. So it sounds like a wonderful movie. I'm thinking I'm to get a touch with I my know, movie. I'm, working, I'm trying to get somebody to put it on Netflix. <laughs> Yes, we have a show here on the network called Talking Upstream, where they put together ideas for movies. And I'm like, hmm, I need to give this to Zach and uh, Dylan, and then also call my friend Ronnie, who did the film this Christmas. I think that we might have a movie here. Because as you were describing, yeah, yeah. I'm like, this sounds strictly like a great movie idea. So, I can't. People keep saying that. I just haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> it's on my but, list. <laughs> all right. So there might be some folks that can make that happen. And some of them have actually dealt with some of those issues as well. Cause I want to say that Ronnie, I don't know about Zach and uh, Dylan, but I want to say that Ronnie who spent some time in the military has also gone through some issues with his own health and everything in terms of his mental health. But he is a very successful Hollywood movie producer over there in LA and has done a few films, including Puff Puff Pass, which is kind of a African-American Cheech and Chong version. It came out before this Christmas and everything. So he's definitely done a couple of things like that and he's working on some new ones as well. So I might have to put you in touch with him and see about that possibility because you would describe that. I was like, I that sounds like the movie and everything. Now, is it early November or late November? That it's, is my birthday is November 7th. So that's so when it's, it'll it's come early, out. It's early November. It'll be early November. So yeah, I have successfully, um, and that's what I help people do because so many people realistically, like 300 and 28 million plus people say they uh, that are Americans a lot of them say they want to write a story and publish it and only about 46,000 end up actually doing that so that's less than one percent of the population and a lot of them is it's that imposter syndrome my story is not good enough or I just don't know how to do it so my, with my coaching I say, listen, I will work with whatever schedule you give me. <laughs> I can still teach you how to publish a book in six months. Um, what I like to do is basically write it, knock it out in a month, get it to the, you know, the people that help me edit it for about a month, and then I just chillax and promote. So um, on ChasingStormy.com and also on Instagram under um, the story, uh, sharing Guru, I just released the book trailer, which is like a movie trailer for The Protector, and I'm so excited. It's pretty epic, so uh, you'll have to go and check on that. Um, but yeah, let's make it a movie. I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, let's make a movie out of it. I think this is a great idea and everything. One thing, and this is just me being curious, because like I said, I did talk to somebody that was going through a similar situation in terms of uh, being diagnosed, I think at some point in their life as being a bipolar and everything. But I also remembered that they had um, what some people would consider 
an unrealistic fear. And I'll tell you what the unrealistic fear was. They had an unrealistic fear of possums. They did not like possums at all. They thought that they were disgusting. And I remember one time being in the car with them, there was a possum at the front steps and they literally had to call their daughter, who at that time was a teenager, in order to shoot the possum away. And they wouldn't let me out of the car to shoot the possum away either because they just were that petrified of possums. So I was just wondering, is that something that is common within the bipolar community to have like what some people may consider uncommon fears? And I'm just using the possum as an example because that's the one that this particular person had. But I don't know enough about <laughs> bipolarism to know whether that's something that's un that happens oftentimes that they may have some other unrelated fears that exist within their thought patterns. There are, there is a reason to be afraid of possums. I came home, I was in high school and I scared a possum that was on our kitchen counter and it jumped on my back and shredded my backpack and then ran down into my parents' bedroom. So I'm with you on the possum thing because that destroyed a whole backpack. But uh, yes, it is typically, um, and I don't know if it's kind of an, a transference of association. Um, we have a hard time really. Um, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by emotions. And even as a kid, um, before I started taking medications, and I still do it not as commonly, but there would be times where I was laughing so hard, but I was bawling hysterically. Like I was up and down at the exact same time and they call it rapid cycling and you are just so overwhelmed with emotions so i think sometimes to kind of transfer that overwhelmingness um you can latch it on to a particular thing mm -hmm. um i am not a fan of snakes i will not go near one i'm good don't even talk to me about one um i can't think of well for me it's heights um I, I i get vertical and it seems to get worse the older i get now i used to climb trees all the time as a kid but the older i got um i i really have a hard time with heights even on a step stool if i get on that second step like i, I start getting dizzy and get real bad vertigo um i can't think of a particular object per se for me it's little things like the heights um still even though i went snorkeling if water hits my face in the shower i'm grabbing a towel like there are certain things that i just to wipe it off i can't have water on my face since i almost drowned when i was little so i think no, i understand the water and the drowning but i'm also trying to like picture the shower because if you're taking a shower it's pretty much the water is going to hit your face on a regular basis yeah i grab that towel on a regular basis too okay. i can't i can't have it like it, if it gets anywhere near my eyes i'm i'm a goner yeah i my door the towel hangs on the back of the door and i'm always like reaching in and grabbing it and drying off really quick i can't so i try very hard but like you said it does happen quite frequently so those are kind of my two things. Um, I can't think of a, an actual object, but I think that that's part of it um, is w it's easier to put it all on one thing. It's kind of like right now with my grandmother, she's had three sons die. And so my dad's the last living one and there's a, a dog that one of them left. And so she is very, 
that's my child and and like more so than any kind of pet lover like she's really transferred all of her you know memories and stuff with her sons into that dog and so i think and i've heard that too that um it may be a situation or it may be an object but i think if we can focus at least some of it it gives us a little bit of relief that you learn really quickly what triggers you mm -hmm. um there are certain things that will trigger you uh, like I know the holidays are always going to trigger me. So I try not to go shopping. Um, there was one year where I didn't go shopping at all. And I made my husband do all of the shopping. And I did a lot better that year, but I still had to go to work and school. And you can't hide from everyone, unfortunately. So I still kind of spiraled a little bit, but not nearly as bad as going to the stores and being caught up in the chaos and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think if there's any opportunity where we know something will either trigger us or we can kind of transfer some of that extra energy onto it that we know if we avoid it, we'll feel better. It's all about feeling better. <laughs> oh yeah. It's all about feeling better is for sure. What is some of the, just in terms of mental health and you've touched on some of them, but in terms of mental health, but also in terms of particularly bipolar, what do you think are some of the biggest myths that exist out there that you really wish folks would stop uh, putting out there? Because I know there's got to be tons of myths that people have. I definitely mentioned the mythology that comes within pop culture and the movies, but I'm sure there is one that has lived through this now for 40 years and was diagnosed, I guess, when you were in your teens or 20s, so been living with it, knowing about it for about 20-something years. What are some of the mythologies that you would like society to get rid of? Um, yeah, so even as a baby, my mom will tell you, um, that I had, you know, seasonal depression and I, my first thought of suicide was probably like, I remember being five and just wanting to take my own life. And that's when I was like, what is that? Um, I just wish the biggest thing is, is that when and it still irritates me to today like if you do get over emotional you know somebody will be like oh you're a girl oh you're on your period or like if it's something where like i'm generally upset about something and i'm not being crazy about it but you just want to say oh you're just being bipolar and get over it don't dismiss my mm -hmm. feelings just because they're not always on what you find to be an acceptable level, it doesn't mean that what's bothering me shouldn't matter. And that's the hardest thing is that, yeah, I know there are times where I get caught up in other people's emotions. So like I said, if I end up in an angry mob and I could have been, you know, thinking about unicorns and rainbows and been the happiest person on the planet and within two minutes of being around that mob, I'll be just as angry as they are. But that doesn't mean when I am upset about something that I should be dismissed because I don't behave the same way that you think I should all the time. Or if I disagree with you, that doesn't mean I'm being bipolar. It means you're probably not right. <laughs> like, so that's, that's the hard part for me is the people that do know Sometimes that's why I, I, 
I used to be careful. I tried to be careful about who I told mostly because that was a big thing was anytime they didn't agree with me or they thought I was, you know, not rational or whatever. It was just, oh, you're just being bipolar. Just knock it off. But I mean, it would have been, I may have been repeating it more because I was trying to process why I was so upset or I may have been crying, you know, because like, it's still hard. If I talk to like a manager or something, it's like being in the principal's office when you're a straight A student. Like, I hate feeling like I'm in trouble, even though I know I've done absolutely nothing wrong. That is a feeling that I will never be able to get rid of. I've decided even at 40, like I just, I always automatically, even though I know I've done nothing wrong, I feel like I'm in trouble, even if I'm not. And so like I get overly emotional and I might cry. I, I tend to cry more um, being in my 40s now. And I don't know if that's a hormonal thing too. But um, that's what I really hate is that some people are just like, they just want to dismiss you quickly without really finding out what's bothering you just because you may be a little more emotional. Do you ever worry, and this may sound like a question out of left field, but I don't know. So that's what we do on podcasts. We ask questions that we don't know. Do you ever worry being in your 40s, and you definitely mentioned hormonal, you don't have any kids now, and if you were to find a relationship, do you ever worry about the hereditary aspect of being bipolar? Because I have heard that sometimes it can be passed on from generation to the next generation and things of that nature. So I was wondering, is that something that even concerns you when you get into relationships, whether you are even thinking that you want a kid and if you want a kid of knowing that that is something that may be faced or is that something that's like a mythology that two folks that are one is bipolar and the other is not, or maybe they're both bipolar can have a kid that is not bipolar at all. So it I really can, don't know. It, it can, it can j jump a generation. Typically it doesn't jump more than one. Mm -hmm. So um, my sister has some depressive aspects to her, um, but she doesn't have the hundred percent bipolar that I have. Um, and it skipped some of my dad's brothers, but one of them was. Um, so it's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a finicky thing. It can jump. Um, usually it doesn't jump too aggressively. Um, so it is something that runs pretty generically. Um, now as for me, I, even as a little girl, I always, I always knew I'd be an amazing mom and I always kind of wanted to be a teacher. And um, my mom used to, cause she worked in the school district would be like, teachers never make any money, don't do it. Um, and so when I was in my thirties, I wanted a kid bad enough that like, I, I knew that it would be more difficult because he was drunk more often than not. Um, and I, that was something I struggled with even in my twenties and my thirties. I was like, I used to think because even then I was like, this is a horrible thing to pass on to anybody. Mm -hmm. And my therapist in Vegas that I had for seven years would have several conversations with me. And every time he would point out, who better to teach them how to function and work with it as an asset than you? And I thought, well, that's not a 
about idea. I, I do do pretty good, don't I? <laughs> so um, got to the point where I was in a marriage, really wanted a kid and was even determined to raise it by myself because I was like, there is no court that would give him our child. Um, and then I found out that he was not the only problem and that that was not going to ever be in my cards. And I know people say that they that you can adopt and I agree a hundred percent, but suddenly it was weird because I had to mourn something that I didn't even have to lose. And it took a, about a year, year and a half to kind of get past that point. Now I'm, I'm to the point where I used to have a high school buddy and his parents, like he was kind of that oops child. And so like his parents were like grandparent age when he was graduating from high school. And I was just kind of like, at this point, I would rather be the best aunt ever to all my friends' kids because I can spoil them, give mom a break, and then give the kids back and still kind of have my quiet time that I need. <laughs> but uh, it was hard um, kind of making that adjustment. But that was something I always struggled with um, because I spent a lot of time feeling guilty. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Um, and I wasn't sure I could handle it. Um, but then, like I said, I had a really good therapist and he was like, he even made me write a letter to Oprah um, explaining how aware I was and how I thought I'd be a good guest. And of course, I got my thank you for participating, but you suck letter, which is what my family calls them. <laughs> but uh, and uh so yeah, we had a, we had a lot of conversations because I was married twice, and that was my that was the one thing that held me back for years was I I I had a real hard time wondering how guilty I would feel giving that to somebody else, and then I kind of I, I do agree. I think that I would have been the perfect person because I figured out how to function and survive with it. And I think that when you have a parent like that, that could have taught all of that, that then it won't have been so damaging along the generations because I would have taught my child how to survive and thrive and then it would have kept going. And I think that maybe that would have helped some of this labeling issues. Um, but it was not meant to be. And so now I, uh, I do, I still spoil all my friends' kids. Um, some friends call me up and especially when they've just had a newbie and they're like, I haven't slept in days. And I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> So, because they know I, how much I love still being around kids. But yeah, it took me about a year and a half. I really 
I couldn't even look at kids. I couldn't, I just, I had to mourn that loss of not being able. And again, there's nothing wrong with adoption at all, but I think just naturally for any woman, once they realize if they did want to carry and they can't, they have to mourn that loss. And that doesn't make them a bad person for not wanting to turn around and adopt right away. But now I'm just in such a later stage in my life. Like I got hurt working at Amazon and I can barely walk most days now. Like I I would be that mom that would want to run and play with my kids and not just put them in front of a TV. And so, yeah, I think at this stage, it's just much better for me to use the story to inspire others and work with adult children instead of little children. <laughs> no, I can definitely relate to that. And I can definitely see what you're saying because I'll hit the big, uh, not that far off from your dad's age, I'll hit the big five, nine in July and everything. So yeah, the big six zero in 2022. So next year, but hit the big five, nine. But I know that even in my forties, and I would even argue in my 50s, I have sometimes thought that if that was one of the great regrets is that I have my two nephews, but I've had no kids of my own. So, yes, even guys have that uh, biological yeah. clock that ticks and want to carry on that legacy. So I know that's that's one of my great regrets. And folks that are like you, they've said, well, you can adopt or you can find somebody that's, uh, you know, 15, 20 years that's still allowed once you hit about 59 or 60 and everything and y'all can have kids and things of that nature but then i have that visualization of like the 79 year old going to the graduation i'm like don't know if i want to quite be there yeah. and everything. i mean i think that was eye-opening for me nothing against my friends but it was you know i can't imagine because both his parents yeah they were they were up there for sure yeah. in their 60s 70s and uh it was it was quite a, an experience to watch him. And he was just like, ah. I mean, he was a laid back kind of nerdy kid. Um, so it wasn't like he was playing football or anything, um, but, or any kind of sports where they had to really, he did theater with me. And so, um, yeah, but it, it was something that I think I witnessed and mentally told myself, yeah, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I always do is I give it to wrap everything up and everything because I got to do my audio podcast at seven. But I was just wondering really quickly, you mentioned a couple of times living there in Vegas. I've actually got a friend that is a teacher in Vegas and everything. I was just wondering, that is such a high intensity kind of environment. When I think of Vegas, I think of the fact that I went there for the first time maybe about two or three years ago and was not used to like gambling fresh out of the airplane. There's gambling waiting for you oh, the whole time and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely I've been to New York and Miami yeah. and those are high intensity <laughs> cities as well. So I was just wondering how, what was your experience like in Vegas and how did you cope in Vegas? Cause it seems to me that those would be some very um, stimulus driven kind of cities and everything with the neon lights and all of that aspect of what Vegas is about. So I was just wondering how did you manage to cope when you were living in those cities? You're in a much more quieter area yeah. now and everything, but <laughs> definitely when you were in that high intensity environment, how were you able to cope in that? Um, I always worked way too hard for my money to gamble it away. So that was not an issue with me. And I think because I already knew what it was like to have extreme highs and lows, I never really did the drugs or um, really drank. 
Um, I also am very sensitive, so I don't like the taste of it. Like if I can taste it, I'm not going to drink it. So it's got to be something really fruity, like a pina colada or something <laughs> that's not going to get me in trouble. Um, but yeah, it, I didn't really understand the concept of how important scheduling was. Um, that's very important. Um, always having snacks on you um, because we take hangry to a whole nother level and it'll be weird because somebody will ask me if I'm hungry and I'll be like oh kind of and I've now learned if I don't eat within 20 minutes the world will explode and people will die so <laughs> I carry snacks <laughs> and I learned that when I was really young so I was the kid that always had food in her backpack and dance bags so kids would be like I forgot to eat this morning and I was like what do you want I got fruit roll-ups and pop-tarts <laughs> so they always came to me for food um, but I was also younger I was 22 I didn't require sleep as much and the first medication they gave me to try um it worked magnificently but it caused massive weight gain so i went from being a size two because yeah uh, i was dancing and i actually lost one of my jobs not only for emotional but because i was getting too heavy and I, but I loved being able to, it was the first time I could fall asleep on my own. Mm. And I hadn't ever done that. And it was like, I seemed to function fine on it, but I got to the size 20 and I'd never been that big in my life. And I have diabetes that runs in my family and my bones just ached. So that's when I really learned about the medical um, medication dance that mm. I like to call it. Um, so I probably didn't handle it as well when I first got there because Vegas is uh, independent contracting more often than not. And so you just kind of took whatever, whenever. So my schedule kind of consisted of interpreting during the day from like eight to about four in the afternoon. And then I would leave and I would be in dance shows um, there was like country shows and rock and roll shows, whatever show I was currently in. There's usually a seven o'clock show and a 10 or 11 o'clock show. Um, so you do two shows and then you get done. And then uh, if somebody needed you to, to fill in to go-go dance until 4 a.m., I could do that. Or um, I was really good at uh, when ever, I was the only single interpreter. So I didn't, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So when people would have to go in the hospital and they'd have to be there overnight, um, I started reading Nora Roberts then because she would have trilogies and I could get through an entire trilogy, like stay up all night and get through an entire trilogy. And again, books came to save me. Um, and so I probably didn't handle it very well in the very beginning. Um, and I, I got off the strip um, so nobody really lives on the strip. Um, and so once you get further away from it, um, mm -hmm. the lights aren't really kind of an issue. But I always, I learned real quick about blackout curtains. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, even to this day, I have blackout curtains and I have sleep masks um, because my 
eyes flutter so much, it's hard for me to get down to like a deep REM level. Mm -hmm. If I'm lucky, I'll be at that light level. But with the eye mask, it helps my eyes not flutter so much. So I do sleep a little bit better. Um, sometimes if I, I did know that if I went too many nights without sleep, usually about three is my max, then I would become really matic. Um, now it's more like the older I get, the more it's like one and I'm like done. <laughs> so, um, because it was my freshman year in college, I never could really, uh, re remember how long the episodes had ever been, but my freshman year in college, um, I had 8am classes and I was in a play and I got off at like after midnight. And so my sleep schedule got off. It was all over the place. And I was manic for like six months and my friends were trying everything. They were making me listen to water and that just made me have to pee. And they were trying to massage me and like everybody was trying everything. And I would run on the treadmill until I couldn't, like I'd pass out from exhaustion. I still couldn't shut my brain off. And then eventually for as high as you get, you end up crashing eventually. And I was depressed for about a year. And then I took that psychology class I could always eventually pull myself out of it. Um, but yeah, so that first couple of years probably didn't handle it as well. But because I was constantly going, it didn't really phase me quite as much. Um, because again, my metabolism was a lot higher and I didn't require sleep back then. But the older I got, the more I am definitely aware that I have to have like a sleep schedule. And um, when I'm switching for, I can't have a schedule that's flip flops. I can't have a swinging schedule anymore. Um, so there have definitely been things that have needed to be adjusted the older that I got, but yeah, back then it wasn't quite as much of a problem. I could have a swing schedule and it wasn't that big of a deal, but now it, that's not something I can do for sure. So. Gotcha. How much is did you find there was a movie that I remember a friend of mine used to watch called Showgirls and everything. How close to that movie was how close to the real life was the movie if you remember the movie? Because I remember it was about the Vegas showgirl kind of mentality and kind of the rivalries that went on within the, that environment. Oh, they're catty. They're terrible. Now, I don't think I ever saw that movie, to be honest. Um, so it's not something I can really compare um i called it the plastic city um it was hard to like i would go out of my way to help other people could never find somebody to return the favor even after i found a church and i was going to that there was only like one person out of the whole church that i could actually count on if i actually needed something so the mentality out there um it's every man for themselves um very much so and um, every, everything's very superficial, especially in the dance world. Um, there's a lot of drugs, alcohol, um, sex, um, and, uh, yeah, everybody's sleeping with somebody doing something. And I was the designated driver. I didn't really want to have anything to do with that. Um, because I still, I was, my rule was you could dress me as skimpy as you wanted to, but I had to be covered. And that was just a personal choice of mine. I was never going to be topless. I was never, I'd turn down jobs that re require me to be topless. So I think it's just kind of up to you, how you want to handle your environment. Um, it's not, yeah, it's kind of selfish and kind of 
catty and very out for yourself and because everybody's scrounging it's like i said it's all independent contracting there's no stability and so it's like yeah, definitely no stability in dance and a lot of the other entertainment fields as well. Do you ever think, because I know my uh, dad's significant other, and they've been together for, I think, almost 20 odd years and everything. Um, not my mom, but his uh, lady love that he's had for a number of years now and everything. But she is a former dance critic and a dancer, and she's actually still doing modern dance and doing it with like folks that are in that older age range. Like, I think that. The last performance she did was folks who were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, if I remember correctly. But I was wondering, is that something you ever think about still getting involved in, doing any form of like dance on any sort of level, similar to what you did as a kid, as more of these kind of older dances are becoming more popular? Uh, so my thing is, is um, I used to dance even in the warehouse at Amazon. Um, but I unfortunately have fallen on my back on the cement floor. Um, so dancing, even in my living room, is painful. So as much as I would love to, um, I mean, it's always going to be a part of me. And I dance on Zoom calls plenty. Um, but yeah, as for actually dancing on like a stage of any sort, I don't see that that's going to be a possibility. I'm still trying to figure out it's that sciatic joint which is impossible to get to um and nothing was broken but it really doesn't like a lot of things so until i can get it to calm down i think i'll have to unfortunately i mean i'll still car dance like nobody's business and rush hour traffic and i entertain people constantly um now i've kind of resorted to singing which is hilarious because i am not the world's greatest singer but it does not stop me i think it, it's kind of my compensation for not being able to dance and i i would tell people hey if i could dance you'd be much better off but i can't so this is what you get <laughs> you get the singing stormy that's a great thing <laughs> As I got about five minutes ago before we wrap up, and by the way, you've been a delightful guest. I have thoroughly enjoyed having you on as a guest and having this great conversation. I have thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. You're very fun and definitely know that you're welcome to come back anytime that you feel like it. Uh, definitely yeah. on this show as well as some of my other platforms because you are definitely quite enjoyable. But one of the things that I always ask all my guests is I know that um, I try to get folks to, as part of our global community and part of our global community kind of help sake and everything, give a word of positivity or a word of encouragement, not just to the folks here in the United States, but to all the elements of the globe, whether that's South Africa, India, um, a number of the other places, because we do have folks that listen in the various countries around the world, as well as around here in the United States. So any final words of encouragement that you would like to share with the audience, I would love for you to give that as well as any ways, once again, that folk can reach you via social media. Uh, yes. So um, I like to say that we are all storm chasers. And that means that we conquer anything that is thrown at us, personal storms, whether you're having a bad day um, and your day starts off spilling coffee all over your outfit before you have to do a Zoom call to even the more extreme, maybe you're walking away from the toxic relationship to everything um, in between. So you will hear me often, um, even on Bookish Chatter, which is on um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a couple of other places. Um, just any podcast, you can look up Bookish Chatter. Um, 
But I always tell people, you know, lace up those shoes and just keep chasing on because you're always going to be able, you were designed to survive and you're going to always survive whatever's thrown at you. Um, as for following me, my website is chasing stormy and that stormy with an I um, dot com. There's a lot of information on there. Definitely subscribe to the newsletters. Um, sometimes you get sneak peeks. Um, they got to see the book trailer before anybody else. Um, and I am continuously on Instagram under the story sharing guru. Um, the best advice I can give to you is that if you have a story to share, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or whatever, just put it down on paper. Just start writing it because your story matters. You matter. And everything that you have to say will change somebody's life for the better. Well, I definitely appreciate you, Stormy. Like I said, I definitely hope that you'll come back on in the near future. I definitely have enjoyed your infectious personality and the fact that you definitely have given some great content and some great uh, concerns, but you also are not afraid to tackle those difficult issues like being in those toxic relationships and even coping with your own uh, bipolar uh, existence and all of that. So definitely, I want to thank you for being a great guest and look forward to seeing you back on in the near future. As a matter of fact, I know that I'm here to jump on the audio podcast with my good friend, Dean Geronimo, and uh, see what he's got going on. So those that were watching the interview with Andro Lozano, we will continue that interview on next week's episode. So we'll get to two part of Andrew Lozano as we had Stormy today as well. So sometimes we'll do these two part interviews. So if you had got the part where we had gotten to the whole, like his trips that he enjoyed, that's where we'll pick it up at on next week's episode, along with whatever whatever other guests we decide to bring into the conversation as well. So also we have the online dinner party here on Wednesday, in which I get to bring my mystery guests. And that's always fun, Stormy. I think you would enjoy it, because what I do <laughs> is I give them clues at the bottom of the screen and everything, and the mystery guests are usually historical figures. So for this uh, month of March, it being Women's History Month, I've been picking out women uh, historical figures, but I've also had some women historical figures in the past. So I know that this month, so far I've had among the guests have been Susan Anthony, um, Madam Curry, as well as a couple of others. But in the past, I've also had Annie Oakley. I've had oh, yeah. uh, Dillinger. I've had a number of other folks. So Good. definitely, yeah, I just rule, roll clues as I'm interviewing folks. And then folks are supposed to guess who that mystery guest is. And then sometimes I'll reveal a picture or I'll just tell the name at the end of the show. And sometimes I'll leave them in total suspense and I have to come back to next week to find out. So it depends on how I, I feel like, like playing the game. I like it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me and I look forward to coming back. Sounds great. So we definitely look forward to having Stormy come back in the, the very near future. Like I said, I'm going to wrap this show up and head on over to the uh audio podcast with my good friend Dean Geronimo, but definitely do remember that we will continue the interview with Andrew Lozano on next week's episode. So look forward to that as well. So if you've been watching and you caught part of the interview and you want to hear the rest of it, we'll be airing the rest of it on next uh, Monday on the 20th. 
At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. Own the road with T-Mobile, the leader in 5G. Whether you're cruising through Nashville on I-40, heading down I-90 to Boston, or touring Santa Cruz on the 5, you'll be covered by the largest 5G network. T-Mobile covers the most interstate highway miles in America with 5G. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Most reliable according to independent third-party Umlaut from crowdsourced user experience data from January to July 2021. Fastest according to OpenSignal Awards based on average speeds in USA. 5G user experience report July 2021.